Discworld, it's Discworld Podcast Analysis, yeah! So I'm Josh. And I'm Alice. And we are the Unseen Academicals. We're, we're back from break. You still can't see us. Still can't see us? Oh, yes, we're still unseen. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm looking at you right now, but <laughs> no one else is allowed. It's a special thing we have. Okay. Uh, it's been a while, Alice. It's been like two months since we recorded one of these. Yeah, so we're, we're back to- we haven't even read a book or a Pratchett book since. We're still talking about uh, Carver Jugulum, and we're going to be for a while because- I've read, I haven't read uh, any Pratchett, but I've read all the vampire books, even more than I'd read last time, <laughs> and uh, watched nearly, nearly a hundred vampire movies, Holy Alice. shit, Josh. No, because Maddie and I, yes, we, we originally, um, so this is a bit of bonus Unseen Academicals content here. Um, yes, originally we were going to do Vamptober, which is like Shocktober, when people watch like 30 horror movies during October in the lead up to Halloween. We were going to do Vamptober, and we got a very carefully curated list of 31 um, vampire movies and yeah we, we well we watched them we got up to like 25 or 26 or something and that's when the power went out I remember which is when we recorded the, the first part the last episode um, but because the power didn't come back on for like two or three days we, we missed a whole bunch of days so we ended up missing a week right at the end and then we were like well we've gone over there's a couple others we're interested in so why don't we just like watch a few more during November and then we'll record at the end of November and then we were like oh this is this is going alright there's still some more we want to watch so what do we do for december we, we watched like a movie or a vampire movie or two pretty much every day for wow. october november december holy shit and then at the start of january oh no it was the end of december we, we've actually recorded the first half of a podcast being like because we're breaking into two parts and be like is the 40 worst vampire movies and the 40 best vampire movies thereabouts because we had about 80 and we recorded the first half where we talk about like 80 to 40 or whatever it is and then we were like there's a couple more though. We really haven't we haven't talked about some of the singles, so we've decided to go for a hundred. Okay. <laughs> we're currently, I think, at about ninety, ninety one, ninety two. So we're gonna finish those out and then hopefully record that and drop it by the end of the month because that that was a special bonus content. Yeah, but I I don't know if we'll uh, use that the original recording, but we had we had fun doing that and uh, got some good conversation about. It. So that's coming today. Um, we're here to talk about all the vampires ever. Yeah. Um, this is this is going to be one of those ones like um, the elf one that we did for Lords and Ladies, where we're not really talking At all. about um, Pratchett, but we are using Carpet Jugulum, or specifically one throwaway scene in Carpet Jugulum, as a, a framework to talk about literary histories and things of, of vampire stuff. This is going to be, I've been pitching this to Alice as a spin-off podcast. This is the crossover between um, Unseen Academicals and of the Devil's Party. This is talking about Byron with Good. Josh and Alice. Because um, Manfred came out and Kane's about to come out and then we're going to go to the Monk guys, so join us. Oh no, I think this is still good stuff though because I think it brings people into Pat Pratchett. Like I've been talking to people at work about this. I'm like, oh, you should listen to my podcast if you like vampires because we're going to talk about all of them ever and they're like, all of them? I'm like, yeah, you, this guy Josh, like he's been in a van and he's been watching these things with his girlfriend and it's, it's a whole thing. And they're like, oh, and they kind of get that afraid look in their eye. <laughs> like, oh. Okay. Um, so, you know, I think, I think we might get some more people through this which is cool well because of the afraid look the premise no no inspires. you know when we go from oh i'm really into vampires and then i turn around and say oh we're doing a podcast with all of the all vampires right, yeah, ever yeah. with 
with this guy <laughs> who's like been in a van and then they're like whoa <laughs> this conversation can we is explain the van i've gone postal i'm driving post vans i was really hoping you were audio books yeah yes. yeah otherwise it just sounds like it's like my coffin i go to this van and i come out during the day or the during the night or what i get up at six in the morning these days Josh is a new Someone person. A he's job. reborn as a vampire um all right what we're gonna do is there's a scene in Carpet Juggling, I don't know if you remember, where Vlad walks down the hall and points to all the portraits on the wall and says, that's my great uncle or great aunt. They're, they're all the different vampires. Yep. Uh, essentially, I think the vampires there he's sticking to are the, the film vampires. I think it's it's Nosferatu, Carmilla, and, and the Hammer Dracula are the um, ones on the wall. I'm using that as an excuse to talk about the development of vampires throughout uh, mostly literary history in this case, um, but films as well. Since recorded things were recorded. Yeah. So, we're going to start with- we're going to be sticking- skipping over folklore pretty much because there's just too much of it and I don't care. Um, yes, and then we're going to talk about the monstrous vampires of the 19th century, um, which circulates around Lord Byron, which is why I'm glad Alice is here. And uh, then uh, Dracula, who's the big one. Um, then the early t- films of the early 20th century and some of the developments of the vampire archetype there. And um, then the sympathization of the vampire in the later half of the 20th century, bringing us up to when Pratchett is writing um, Carpet Juggler in the 90s to sort of talk about how the vampire tradition has changed and, yeah, where where it's at when Pratchett steps in. And we m- might talk a little bit about what comes after just as a throwaway thing, but obviously it's not relevant to the book. Um, but it is interesting where the vampire goes, and I might talk about that a bit more on the future episodes because Elsa's right, this is going to be a three-parter plus like a million bonus episodes uh does that sound good to you alice the mollusk is pleased (laughs) so i i live in a van and alice is a mollusk that's what you need to know all right kick us off all right so uh, yeah i don't really want to talk much about the folklore but just to give it a bit of uh lip service lisa ledusa in her book that i didn't write there i think it's called how to kill a vampire and this is this is sort of like one of those uh pop academia academia ones that we were slagging off before but it's very good if you want just like a primer on like vampire tropes uh, throughout history, this book's very good. So that is uh, Lisa with two eyes. Uh, Ledusa, I think it is, and it's called How to Kill a Vampire. Brought out of that. We'll talk more about this in part three, which is when I want to go through and talk about like the actual tropes, like the garlic and, and the crosses and things, the actual How to Kill a Vampire part of it. But in that book, she points out, to sort of link this into Pratchett and the Witches series, that the list of people targeted um, for vampirism... In, in folklore. Traditionally includes alcoholics, robbers, godless folk, prostitutes, murder victims, arsonists, supposed witches, werewolves, and dreadful and treacherous barmaids. As opposed to your regular barmaid. <laughs> <laughs> yes, de- deceitful and treacherous barmaids. Um, which is to say that just like witch hunting in folklore, vampire hunting was a way to solve mysterious bad luck by scapegoating the most unpopular folks in town. So just like we've been talking about the old women in the cottage being you know, the scapegoat to say, oh, she's a witch, burn her. Um, Vampires in pre-19th century literary history folklore was sort of like a way to do that with with the town drunk. Mm. So, yes. uh, Similarly, uh, Pratchett and Simpsons back this up in the folklore of Discworld, saying that early European vampires were not aristocrats, but village folk. They did not look like noble gentlemen in black cloaks or luscious women in low-cut ball gowns. They looked like what they were corpses nice so the the actual origins and all the myths of, of vampires are there's too much of them it's also like it's too scattered to go into mm. right the, the idea of what a vampire is 
really gets codified through the literary tradition, through Byron in the 19th century and Polidori and, and especially Stoker's Dracula, right? Because before that, vampires are just the undead. They're not they're not even bloodsuckers, right? We talked about in the last episode how um, vampires were sort of soul-sucking incubus ghosts. Um, but also vampire was used interchangeably with zombies and werewolves. It was mm. just the undead, right? I think the progression is when uh, someone dies, they become a zombie and then they become a werewolf. And then when the werewolf's killed, it becomes a vampire and then there's ghosts. Okay, so like an abstract dead entity thing. Yeah, it's just the uh, the undead, right? I mean, that's what um, Dracula translates Nosferatu in. Uh, not Dre, Stoker translates Nosferatu as in Dracula. It's just the undead. Um, and the, the original title of Dracula was meant to be Dracula the Undead. Huh. But yes, as, as I mentioned in the introduction, the evolution of the literary vampire, or the, the pop culture vampire, is shown in Carpajuglum by the Magpie family portraits. As Pratchett explains, what Agnes has shown is the evolution of vampires, from Harpy to Harry Monster to Lugosi Lee, um, that's Bella Lugosi and Christopher Lee in the Universal and Harrow horror films, and ultimately a Byronic bastard. There we go, we have Pratchett using the word Byronic, although he's done it backwards, because mm. Byron comes before all, yes. of, all of these, as we'll get to. And he says, and what better way to demonstrate this than a succession of family portraits? What better way to structure a podcast? So let's get into it then with the, the literary evolution there. So the first picture um, Agnes has shown, it says, And here, well, some distant ancestor, that's all I know. This picture was mostly dark varnished. There was a suggestion of a beak on a hunched figure. <laughs> so I think it's Pratchett explaining this, um, that this is a depiction of the Strix, which is a character from Roman mythology that stabbed and drank blood through its beak. In Romanian, it was referred to as Astragoi or Strigoica, and it was a type of shape-shifting, blood-sucking witch. Interesting that it's gendered female. Right, this is Lilith, essentially. Yeah, yeah. Because uh, yeah. she's the Shriek Owl or whatever. And and Lilith has, shows up as a vampire in, in a bunch of things. You also, the term, like, this figure of the vampire doesn't really exist past Stoker and Byron, but you do get the word Strigoi, especially in more recent um, vampire fiction, carries on. So it, it is referred to in Dracula, where that's what the Romanian village people refer to vampires as, right? They're the Nosferatu, they're the Strigoi. But now this is commonly used in 21st century vampire fiction as a label for, like, quote-unquote bad or evil um, vampires. In Vampire Academy, there's the good vampires who are the Maroi and the bad vampires who are the Strigoi. Uh. This happens in some other ones that I can't think of off the top of my head, but this is a term that's sort of like, yes, the more monstrous evil vampires are called Strigoi and designated as Strigoi in a lot of modern vampire fiction. We'll get to this eventually, but now that the vampires become sort of a heroic civilized figure, by playing it off uh, against this monstrous outsider, that's sort of repeating Dracula. Mm. Now the vampires have become the civilized culture that are threatened by this monstrous outsider. That's interesting. That's cool. You also have Ian Carpa Juggle and you have Lady Strigoyle, whose daughter has taken to calling herself Wendy. Okay. So yes, that's that's referring to sort of the traditional folklore version of the vampire. Then there is the portrait of the old Count de Magpire, the father of the present one, and remembered um, by some in Carpa Juggle as Old Red Eyes, which is um, Dracula. Dracula has red eyes, but I think this is more referring to uh, Christopher Lee in the Hammer Horror films. There's a lot of close-ups of, of his red eyes and and so, yeah, he's old red eyes, which is also obviously a reference to uh, Frank Sinatra being old blue eyes. Mm. That's the joke there. But he has 
rather than resembling um, what we think of as Dracula, which is Christopher Lee in the 60s Hammer movies, uh, the old Count of Magpie has a bald head, dark rimmed staring eyes, two teeth like needles, two ears like bat wings, and fingernails that hadn't been trimmed for e- for years. So um, this is uh, Count Orlock from Nosferatu. Oh, nice. Okay. Yeah, that that's who's here, um, which also uh, the, in the film version of Salem's Lot, the, the vampire and that, which normally this is what the Strigoi look like now right mm. monstrous they got the long claws they got the primitive teeth so yeah here um where we're talking about count orlock and nosferatu we'll come back to him when we get to nosferatu in the timeline which isn't for another hundred years but now i want to go into the beginning of the literary vampire tradition which the earliest example that i can find evidence of is uh 25 Sanskrit fables starring I've alternately alternately read it as Vikram the Vampire or King Vikram and the Vampire um so I don't think Vikram is actually the vampire, but a lot of copies of the book are called Vikram the Vampire, I think. But yes, this is a, a, sans, a collection of Sanskrit fables um, dating back to 730 AD, so quite wow. old. And I mean, like, obviously there's folklore before that, but this is the first sort of written version. I do have a copy of this. I have not read it. More modernly, you have the German poem Der Vampire by Heinrich August Ossenfelder. Mm-hmm. From 1748, which is perhaps the first modern vampire poem, right? This is an immortal blood-drinking creature we're talking about here. Cool. And then you also have Goethe, uh, Johann Wolfgang von der Goethe, uh, his 1797 poem, The Bride of Corinth, which is about an Athenian man who is visited by the ghost of a young girl to whom he was betrothed, but then her family converts to Christianity, dooming her to a life of chastity, so she dies of grief. Is this relatable? Not at all. <laughs> um, do you have anything to, to say about uh, Goethe? Um. Listen to the Manfred episode of Off the Devil's Party because we have about 20 minutes on Goethe. <laughs> um, just that he was a huge influence on Byron. I think that this is the place and time, or the time and place rather to say it. Like, he was a very proud man and he was very frustrated with Byron's work because he kind of felt that Byron didn't give him enough credit because Byron didn't give him enough credit. So, you know, if it was here, Byron read it. Like, he read The Bride of Corinth. Um, no, I'm glad you said that because that actually does give us a link to what happens rather than me just listing things. Because, yeah, unlike other sort of proto-vampire stories like Christabel, um, Coleridge's Christabel, which is sort of like a ghost succubus labia sort of thing if you ask Patrick. Or what's the other one you mentioned? I know this comes later, but there's a Keats one where the knight's dying. It's got like a weird French name or some um, shit. La Belle Dame Saint-Messic. That's the one. Yeah. Which you mentioned in one of the previous episodes, but I don't know what the context was. Yeah, a lot of these early poems are about like, yeah, ghostly figures who, who come and normally sleep with the person. So they're like ghostly incubus. Um, the reason why Goethe's version is significant is because it's ex- explicitly about blood sucking which i think is what we now associate like that's sort of what i know there's energy vampires and things but what we think of as vampires that seems to be the definitive characteristic while we're here it's interesting that we're like again there's still kind of women some of them um and that idea which we talked about which with, with witchcraft or whatever is that or this fear that men, women would come and suck the manhood out and then you'd lose your virility in your life and now vampires blood sucking like it's kind of a similar vibe as the kids yeah it's that energy transference thing yeah. we were talking about with the trinity except yeah here it's women blood which is like that's the whole little thing right is yeah. that according to the the jewish legend thing is that her sin or, or her whatever was bad about her was that she wanted to be on top go lilith <laughs> guess i just hadn't heard of power bottoming back then yeah <laughs> go <laughs> although, adam <laughs> although greek um 
Greek records. Actually, uh, hang on. Yes, you're right. Yeah, <laughs> Our bottoms were a thing. That's what Patroclus <laughs> was, absolutely. Mm-hmm. But yeah, the earliest instance of the word vampire in English literature comes in Robert Southey's poem Thalaba the Destroyer from 1801, where in a group of sorcerers from Dom Daniel, which we talk about in our gaming episode. So mm-hmm. you can go and listen to that if you want to hear about what Dom Daniel is. So yes, a group of sorcerers from Dom Daniel attempt to avert the prophecy of a Muslim warrior Thalaba who is fated to destroy all sorcerers. Do you, you know this one, Alice? Southie's one of your guys. I read it at the very start of my PhD. It wasn't important and I never went back to it. It's very long. Yeah. Um, I only read the start of book eight, which is the relevant section, which describes an encounter with a demon who has possessed the dead body of Thalaba's wife, Onesia, who Thalaba promptly dispels by thrusting his lance through the vampire corpse, which, you know, you can read whatever phallic imagery into that you want. I will. Uh, but yeah, this is where we get the word vampire from. Although, yeah, it's, again, this is the ghostly apparition of, of the dead wife come to suck his soul rather than um, the bloodsucker. This is more like the deadites, the zombie demons you get in, like, Evil Dead or something like that. Mm. We also, we never get lances again as a specific method of disposing vampires. Though, of course, like, you know, you get impalement and, and all sorts of staking and all that, but you don't get a specific, like, he has the magical lance. You get magical swords and things. Lance never comes up. So the original vampire uh, killing tool was not a long lived one, apparently. Uh But yeah, at this point vampires are still undead, zombies, werewolves, ghosts. The modern conception of a vampire along with the beginning of the English vampire literary tradition, of course, begins about 20 years later with your boy Lord Byron! (laughs) So yeah, we've mentioned Lord Byron a few times. Go listen to Alice's Manfred episode. Hours, guys. Come on. <laughs> it is in the it is in the academicals feed, so they've probably listened to it. For people who didn't listen to your Manfred episode, do you want to give us like the five sentence summary of who Lord Byron is? Alright, so he's a second generation romantic poet. Um, yes, from the early 19th century. He is one of probably the second or third writer to actually make bank out of writing and was incredibly popular for his narrative style poetry, which used existing archetypes and drew them together to characterize a very specific specific character type, which is this kind of broody, sympathetic, dark, evil past, gloomy character that we all know and love called the Byronic Hero. Which Alice is writing their thesis about. Uh, yeah, so Byron um, was exposed to vampiric folklore during his grand tour of Europe at the start of the 19th century and started embedding these ideas into his poetry um, with his 1813 Orientalist poem, The Giaour, which is about a Turkish heretic who kills the man who drowned his lover with the narrator predicting that as punishment, do you want to read this one, Alice? First on earth is vampire sent, thy corpse shall from its tomb be rent, then ghastly haunt thy native place and suck the blood of all thy race. There from thy daughter, sister, wife, at midnight drain the stream of life, yet loath the banquet which perforce must feed thy livid living corpse. Thy victims ere they yet expire shall know the demon for their sire. Right, so this is what the the GR, the GR, he doesn't have a name, that's just who he is, um, is saying, oh, I've sinned by committing this murder, so my punishment is I'm going to come back as an undead and thirst out the blood. So we don't have an actual vampire in this poem, just the idea, but this is... A concert. Uh-huh. It's also sort of this wandering Jew figure, right? Yes. Like Cain, who, again, go listen to Alice's podcast to hear more about. Um, but yeah, so he's a wandering Jew figure. He's condemned to kill his own family by sucking their blood. But uh, I thought interesting for your purposes, he, he goes to the monastery to repent, which was something you brought up as this like characteristic thing of the Byronic hero. This yep. repentance is really the thing Byron brings to it. But yeah, so here we, we have demon, we have a demonic origin is still hanging over. That's something that disappears later on. Uh, we got blood sucking, but yeah, no actual vampire appearance. 
The first actual appearance of a vampire comes as a result of the famous Genevan ghost story night that also gave us Frankenstein. And <laughs> Alice is doing the wavy inflatable man arms. <laughs> yeah. So, for people who aren't aware, uh, <laughs> the Shelleys and Byron, so that's Percy Shelley and Mary Shelley, who wrote Frankenstein, and Percy Shelley, who wrote poetry. Um, and Percy Byron. Shelley, Mary Shelley's lesser known husband. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're, they're much more famous, but has not really stood the uh, test of time. a lot of illegitimate children, anyway. <laughs> And Claire Claremont, and William Polidori, and probably some other people. Uh, but yeah, the, the Byron Shelley Circle, they went and hung out in this mansion in Geneva been that Alice has been I've to. been to this one. Yeah, oh, Dan, you knew that. <laughs> and they read a collection of, I think it's French. I thought it was German. Phantasmagoria is German. Yeah. Yeah, sorry. Uh, German ghost stories called Fa- Phantasmagoriana. Nice. Um, have you read any of these? Um, I downloaded it at one point, but no. Um, the, there's two um, sort of vampire stories in there. Um, there's the Ghost Bride, which is sort of a Camilla story it actually has a character called Carmilla so I'm sure that was nice. some kind of influence um, but also significantly the character of that story the tell of her being a vampire is she has the mark of a small strawberry on her neck and if you cast your mind back to I think like episode three of um, Unseen Academicals when we were talking about Macbeth and Weird Sisters there was the whole thing about the strawberry birthmark being the mark of the king ah. and we couldn't work out what it was now this, this isn't it but this is the only time I found a specific reference to a small Small strawberry birthmark. Okay, so either it's just coincidence or... Um, I mean, this is mark of a small strawberry, because I was starting to think that strawberry was a colour rather than a shape, right? They have a red birthmark rather than a strawberry-shaped birthmark, mm-hmm. maybe? But this says the mark of a small strawberry, so that... But okay. that, that's... I just weirdly found this, this connection there, but I don't know what it means. And apparently Byron also recited the start of Christabel, which was then unpublished. Yeah. So we've got some of these, yeah, these proto-ghost vampire stories being read at night, and then they they all challenged each other to write a ghost story, and Mary Shelley wrote Frankenstein. But then Byron also started writing a vampire story about a dude named Augustus Darvel, who Dumb is name. more than usually robust for his age, and who, after being apparently mortally wounded by bandits, asked the narrator to bury him and throw his Arabic ring into the Bay of Eleusis on the ninth day of the month. So we don't have any actual vampire activity in this story, although Byron's letters make Darvel's nature clear mm-hmm. that the story was to go on, that he would then be resurrected and be a vampire who comes back to haunt the narrator um, in his town. This story fragment was later published in the magazine Mazeppa in 1819, after Byron abandoned plans to expand it into a, no- into a novel. It might have been published alongside Mazeppa in a magazine. So it might have been in a magazine with Mazeppa. Oh, is Mazeppa not the magazine? Mazeppa's a Byron poem. Oh. Yeah. Well, I've misinterpreted that. Right. I thought Mazeppa was the name of the magazine. Um, But yeah, Byron's idea for the story was, however, later adapted into the 1819 short story, The Vampire, that's Vampire with a Y, by Byron's physician, John William Polidori. Alice, do you want to explain the plot, plot briefly here? Um, dude meets Lord Ruthven, Lord Ruthven dies, but then he shows up again in, like, um, the society of the English aristocracy, and this dude's like, hey, he's trouble, and no one listens to him, and then he wants to marry his sister? Yeah, the narrator's sister. Yeah, the narrator's sister, and then kills her. And it's, it really takes the vampire narrative and turns it into a narrative about um, 
the the soul sucking aristocracy. I mean, it's about it's about lots of things, but like we had before this, our vampires are female succubi, mm-hmm. and then here we have a male succubi because so we think- have he comes back and he's like picking off all the women of the town one by one and working his way up to the sister who significantly is only eighteen and had not yet been presented to the world. So this is the implication of virginity, but also yeah that she's about to enter adulthood and be preyed upon. Um, I think there's a few things at play um, and you've probably, it was partly Polidori making fun of Byron and the way Byron um, engages with the world around him. Was a lecherous pervert. Lecherous pervert, let's go with that. Um, But also the aristocracy more broadly. I was just talking with Peter the other day how in the sort of, in, in the 18th and the 19th century, we move away from the aristocracy like having a job, like they've got to do things to just be being assholes with money who have money and no concept yeah. of wealth or how to use it or what to do with it or really anything. And so they're just oh, assholes. That's the whole time machine thing, yeah. right? The Eloy, yeah. So I, I think it's criticism of of that in society, and because this guy comes and fashions himself as an English gentleman, and then like goes about sucking blood. I think it's part of it. And is that like because Lord Byron is a lord, mm-hmm. right? So that, that is tied in with the characterization of I Byron so. as a lord, even though he's depicted as this rebel figure. He is of the upper upper <laughs> class. Yeah, <laughs> he yeah. had a fuck ton of money. And this is where we get the first depiction of the vampire as a seductive romantic figure, mm-hmm. um, which I've got this big long paragraph here. Do, do you want? read this out? Sure. Um, the common adulteress could not influence even the guidance of his eyes. It was not that the sex was indifferent to him, but such... Sorry? It was not that the sex was indifferent to him. <laughs> I think that means meaning gender there, so not oh, that right. women were indifferent but to him. But such was the yeah. caution with which he spoke to the virtuous wife and innocent daughter that few knew he ever addressed himself to females. He had, however, the reputation of a winning tongue, yeah, and whether it was that this even <laughs> overcame the dread of his singular character or that they were moved by his apparent hatred of vice, he was as often Often among these females who adorn the sex by their domestic virtues as among those who sully it by their vices, and that by feeding upon the life of a lovely female to prolong his existence for the ensuing months, his blood would run cold whilst he attempted to laugh her out of such idle and horrible fantasies. So it's like the seductive figure taking the pure virgin and making her a wayward woman. There's something here like we're talking about this as like a parody caricature of Byron, right? He's seducing women with his tongue, right? It's his poetry. Yeah, women wrote um, letters to Byron being like, I feel like I know you. Like, I love you. Like literally felt like they understood him through his poetry. Cause I can't remember whether he's like particularly attractive. Like he's sort of described as, as uh, what's the word malnourished. That was kind of in fashion though. <laughs> right. I, I, but I think it was meant to show his like, well, his, his vampirishness that he is, I want to say malnourished, but um, lacking something, lacking mm. lacking in life. I don't know. Um, so the narrator watches Lord Ruthven, but the very impossibility of forming an idea of the character of a man entirely absorbed in himself, of one who gave few other signs of his observation of external objects than the tacit assent to their existence, implied by the avoidance of their contact, at last allowed his imagination to picture something that flattened its propensity to extravagant ideas. He soon formed this person into the hero of a romance and determined to observe the offspring of his fancy rather than the individual before him. Byron. So this is the idea of the, yeah, the romanticizing of the monster, which is 
the Byronic hero, right, the sympathizing of the Gothic villain, is literally written into the foundational text of Byronic vampires, right? Yep, there's our boy. Yeah, but this isn't Byron doing this, this is Apollodori. And it's interesting that he does it as a criticism of Byron because, um, not on this podcast, on my podcast, I talk about Lady Carolyn Lamb, who writes Glenarvan, which is like this thinly veiled uh, Romaniclev novel about her relationship with Byron, and like lots of other people were doing this, um, writing about Byron because he was such a celebrity. And so he's cr- criticizing him, but actually it turns into the greatest flattery ever because he establishes Byron himself as a literary archetype. So I was thinking about this the other day. And I'm like, maybe this is where it comes from. Like not the Byronic hero as, as an established figure, but like the Byronic hero is just Byron. Yeah. And this is also like what's going on in Carpa Juggling. There's all the people in the town just think the vampires are really charming, mm. but they, they can't see the, the real thing that's in front of them. So I, th- I think that's interesting. Yeah. Um, there's also the physical allure. Since I did such a horrible job of reading that last one, do you want to read this one again, Alice? Um, so those who felt this sensation of awe could not explain whence it arose. Some attributed it to the glance of that dead gray eye, which fixing upon the object's face, seemed not to penetrate and at one look to pierce through the inward workings of the heart but to throw upon the cheek a leaden ray that weighed upon the sun it could not pass some however thought that it was caused by their fearing the observation of one who by his colorless cheek which never gained a warmer tint from the blush of conscious shame or from any powerful emotion appeared to appeared to be above human feelings and sympathies the fashionable names for frailties and sins his peculiarities caused him to be invited to every house all wished to see him and those who had been accustomed to violent excitement and now felt the weight of ennui were pleased at having something in their presence capable of engaging their attention and this is society's response to Byron's fiction like that's exactly what's happening yeah this is the like we know we shouldn't like it but we're fascinated by it sort of thing this is like he's not he has a physical lure but he's not sexy he's like curious and weird the the vampire is only like 40 pages long or something but every time I've read it it's just been an absolute slog and I think us trying to read these paragraphs have pointed out why it's because Polidori is a terrible writer Polidori is a terrible writer I'm so glad I was saving that (laughs) yeah no he's awful he was such a dickhead as well he challenged Byron (laughs) to a duel on a boat like he was a whiny little prick anyway so yeah the, the modern vampire really comes from Polidori but he essentially ripped off Byron and then just made the vampire literally Lord mm. Byron. And moreover, the vampire was first published as being by Lord Byron, <laughs> with Polidori later writing to clarify his authorship, explaining that the story was, quote, founded upon the groundwork upon which Byron's fragment was to have been continued. So... He sucks off Byron's celebrity for his own celebrity. He's <laughs> like, I didn't rip it off, I just founded it upon the groundwork upon which his fragment By the way, is, continued. like, Byron getting his just desserts because he ripped everything off everyone. Like, he has entire letters being like, no, I didn't take it from Marlowe, which I've never read, and I didn't take it from Goethe, which I also have not read. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good point. But yeah, so this has often been read as a parody or, or satire of Byron himself. So when we say vampires are Byronic, they're, they're literally Byron in a lot of cases. And the vampire is, of course, alluded to in Carpa Jugulum when Vlad tells Agnes that the new vampires prefer vampires with a Y since it's more modern. I did get a chuckle out of that. Right. The the irony being that it was originally spelled with a Y. um, But I also realized that there's like the emphasis on um, note spelling, Mm. like this definition of of labels, Mm. Magrat and and Margaret note spelling. Yeah, I guess the, the, the baby... 
having note spelling as the middle name is sort of pointing out the ways like people try and define themselves through labels and identity and things yeah. like that and that the vampires are trying to define themselves as modern when the essence of what they're taking is actually old-fashioned i guess yeah okay yeah later when describing the vampire's competitive nature pratchett also clarifies that vampires are just the same that's vampires with a y are just the same as vampires with an i the only real difference being that they can't spell properly Except again, they're, they're maybe bringing back the correct or original spelling. And there's also this idea, like we were talking about, quilting modifiers and things that, like, language evolves. One point they would have been right, now they're not. It's like the progress thing. There's layers, baby. Layers. It's a soup. Before we move on from Polidori, also Polidori's other other thing that he wrote was, uh, how do I say this? Ernestus Brechtold or the Modern Oedipus. That was the story he started during the Ghost Tale competition. Further evidence that Polidori is a prick. <laughs> Which, according to the 2007 Broadview Press edition, scandalously draws on the rumours of Byron's affair with his half-sister for a Faustian updating of the myth of Oedipus, which he combines with account of the struggle of Swiss patriots against the Napoleonic invasion. I want to bring him back from the grave to punch him. <laughs> I, I started reading this and then gave up because it's boring and Terrible? also just irrelevant, but there are explicit references to Manfred mm. in the first chapter. I think I can get through life without knowing. <laughs> I'm not reading that one. Well, this section's only in here for me to chastise you for not, not reading, reading this because ever. I don't know how you can write your, your thesis without acknowledging this. So don't give a fuck about Polidori. But this is a Faustian updating of the myth of Oedipus with references to Manfred written on the on That's the night. dumb as fuck. Honestly, it's a good one, but it's a thing what happened. Uh-huh. Um, but yes, although not about vampires, it does quote a passage from Byron's Giawa, um as an epigraph. But in um, just to put the nail in the coffin, as it were, to Polidori being a minor imitator of, of his companion, in his own introduction to the story, he says, I hope the reader will not throw my story away as opposed to Frankenstein <laughs> and, and, and Byron's vampire story. Uh, it says, I hope I, they will not throw my story away because it is not equal to the others. Um, whether the use I have made of supernatural agency and the colouring I have given to the mind of Ernestus Brechtold are original or not, I leave to the more erudite in novels and romances to declare. So as someone who is erudite in novels and romances, I will say the supernatural agency is not original and I'm going to throw this story away because it is not equal Good. to the others. Same. Yeah, so that, that's the origins in the, in the literary world, but of course the, the other parallel thread running to literature um, throughout the development of Vampire is the theatre. The theatre. The theatre, uh, which of course ties into um, Masquerade and then... God, that book. <laughs> <laughs> Alice is having flashbacks. But yes, well, this is also like we have the, the theatre and then um, the films. Is There there are these parallel... Um, Traditions developing? Yeah, um, that sort of feed off each other, right? Very vampire-like. Yeah, so Polidori's vampire was less popular as a story than it was as a play. Mm -hmm. um, it became extremely popular through, through theatrical adaptation, so that by 1820, just a year after it was first published, there were three separate adaptations um, showing in France. The most popular of which, Le Troyes Vampires, so I guess that's um, the three vampires, followed the adventures of a Byron fanatic who decided to treat the lovers of his two daughters and his maid as if they were vampires, um, which predictably culminated in a triple marriage. I have no words. <laughs> could, could be some connection to Manfred there. The first ever vampire novel, Lord Ruthven Ule Vampires, which was dedicated to Lord Byron, was also published the same year. Cool. Um, but the most faithful of the 18... 
20 theatrical adaptation, Le Vampire, note spelling with an I, mm-hmm. um, by Charles Nodier, was rewritten by Three Musketeers author Alexander Dumas in 1851, um, with Dumas also writing a sequel to Polidori's Vampire called The Return of Lord Ruffin the same year. Um, and also he wrote a novella called The Pale-Faced Lady, which is set in the Carpathian Mountains, which Bram Stoker references in his notes to Dracula. So this is maybe where we get the origin of Transylvania mm. as part of the vampire myth, which is also mentioned in a story, a contemporaneous story called The Mysterious Stranger. So this is where we're getting these aspects of the myth that are often associated with Dracula, bleeding in before Dracula, um, but also based on uh, and Ruthven and Polidori's work. But yes, the, the next most um, significant literary uh, work of vampire fiction is the uh, penny dreadful Varney the Vampire, which is variously attributed to James Melvin Reimer or Thomas Peckett Prest. I think I've worked this out since I write this. So at the time it was published as by Thomas Peckett Prest and then later was credibly uh, shown to have been written by uh, Rama. So nowadays, even though the original pamphlets all say by Thomas Peckett Press, nowadays it's it's pretty ex- well accepted that Finally the Vampire was written by James Malcolm Rama. But if Polidori's Vampire was based on Byron, then as Lisa Ledusa observes, Varney is surely the first story of note to use the historical counts of vampirism that had been published in the early 1800s as its basis. Mm-hmm arguing that Varney is defined by self-loathing that is solidified in Anne Rice's Vampire Chronicles um, and the Cain and Warner and Jew sort of stereotype. I'll, I'll go through all that in a second, because since writing this, I've gone down the, the Varney rabbit hole, because no one's read Varney, because it's Long. three volumes of of 800-page bullshit chapters. If you want an abridged version, email me, because I've spent the last month going through that first volume and abridging it into one 160-page readable sort of novel-style version, which has been fun and a better way to process the story than actually reading it, I think. But there's a lot here. Like, this is not a good book. This is written as a penny mm. dreadful to just be chapters that don't make any sense. There's, the dialogue's horrible and things. But there's a lot of interesting stuff going on in Varney, which I'll come back to later. But as um, as Ledusa is alluding to here, a lot of the stuff we associate with the modern hyper-Byronic vampire, the, the broody, self-loathing Anne Rice-style vampire, actually comes in this Varney the Vampire story, which ends like he, he commits suicide. He throws himself into a volcano because it's all too much, right? A literal volcano? Yeah, yeah, a literal volcano. In, the, in this thing that predates um, Dracula by like 30 years, or even more, 40, 40 to 50 years... And then was just, and was incredibly popular at the time. Like, apparently this is one of the best-selling Penny Dreadfuls ever. And then was just forgotten. Because it was bad? Well, it's just that the form is unreadable, yeah. right? It's it's like a soap opera sort of thing where... Is it ostensibly readable if you're getting it in the paper each week and it's 10 pages? Like... I mean, even then, like, it, it becomes very padded. Uh. But yes, again, I've I've made a nice, um, nice little bridge version if you're interested. Oh, but the aristocracy thing, right? This is all about the aristocracy. Like, because Varney is a vampire terrorizing this household and trying to prey on the virgin daughter and everything but not to get her blood it's because he wants to scare them out of the house so that he can sell their house for money because he owes a guy because he's like more of a werewolf sort of thing where like he can be revived if he's dragged into the moonlight but again that's sort of that's how Lord Ruthven and Augustus Starvel are revived by moonlight as well it's Heathcliffy as well then okay like about money and inheritance and trying to get power it's very Heathcliff what what is Wuthering Heights? 1840 47. Oh, so this begins before 
Wuthering Heights, but ends after it. There you go. The two must have, like, they must have known each other. I mean, he's not as, like, scheming and devious, as, as, like, in control as Heathcliff. He's, like, sort of this bumbling gothic villain sort of guy. He does have trapdoors and disappears out windows and things. But, yeah, brings in that self-loathing thing because he is, like, himself tormented because he owes this guy money because he paid him to put him in the moonlight so he wouldn't die. And then this guy comes back and he owes him a debt. And it's all about, like, class distinctions. And it's, like, it's like sort of like a comedy of manners. Yeah, nice. And it has a lot of stuff. Like, the scene where um, from Carpet Juggling where the mob shows up to the gate and they don't know what they're doing and it's all superstition stuff. Like, that happens in Varney the Vampire. Like, there's some, some chapters are, like, comedy satires about, like, the townspeople people gossiping and the story getting out of hand to the point where they're overacting. It, it's it's not a good read. It's a very interesting read if, like, you're interested in vampires. I am, like, fully on the campaign for people need to read Varney if they're interested in vampires because, like, they just go, it's, oh, it's too long, it's too hard, but it's such a crucial part of the story, I think. Okay. But yeah, so it was out of print for like a hundred years until it was first republished in 1973 in a two version volume right before Interview with the Vampire. So I'm going to come back to some funny things when we talk about that. Did Anne Rice read it? We don't know. Okay. She's dead now, so we can't ask her, can we? But yeah, this has been forgotten to scholarship and popular culture, because in the folklore of Discworld, Pratchett and Simpson jumped straight. They said there was Lord Ruthven, then there was Carmilla in the 1870s, right? We're skipping that entire midsection where there's all these, what we would think of as like pulp fiction vampires, right? These trashy newspaper serials. Mm. So yeah, some of, some of the characteristics of Varney that he brings in are that this introduces the telltale sign of the two bloody bite marks on the neck of the victim. There are things like sleepwalking, the diff- discussions of the different ways to kill vampires, mobs. You've got the transformation into a wolf. The thing about Varney too, though, is he's ugly. Like, he's not a hot, suave guy. He's like this ugly old lord so yeah um it's interesting mm-hmm. but yeah more, more significant or more remembered is Carmilla who um is referenced in Carpa Jagum. we have Aunt Carmilla a very severe woman in, in a figure hugging black dress and deep plum lipstick who was said to bathe in the blood of up to 200 virgins at a time what's six times 200 <laughs> it's like 120 liters of blood how many liters in a bathtub because that's probably just a bathtub and that equals <laughs> 200 virgins the other thing is this bathing and blood thing because like in the story Carmilla like she's in the blood in the coffin, but that's like the ghostly blood of her victims. This whole bathory bathing of blood thing is not really a thing in any vampire fiction, except the ones that are specifically about bathory. So yeah, where we do get references to bathory are the 1979 Australian film Thirst, which is a really cool science fiction cattle dystopia. I do recommend that film. It's very interesting. But they're also not real vampires. They're people who are imitating vampires to try and bring back um, Bathory's descendants. Carmilla does bathe in blood in one of the best vampire movies, Vampire Hunter D. Bloodlust, and is in some of the 1970s vampire films such as Countess Dracula, Daughters of Darkness, and Immoral Tales. But outside of all of these fairly minor examples and Carpet Juggling itself, it's not actually a common trope of vampire fiction. Okay. It's one of those things that everybody knows about vampires that when you look at the literature in the films, never actually happens. Yes, Camilla, for those who don't know, is a... It's not a short story. It's like a novella, small novel. Novella, yeah. That was later collected into... Made into a collection. So, novella works. uh, From 1872 by Irish author Joseph Sheridan Le Fanu, uh, which is where you get uh, lesbian vampires from, right? This is the, the yeah. girl who comes in and seduces the daughter. 
It's interesting because, um, as I just talked about recently, it's like her, she is she's beautiful because she's sublime. Like it brings the two things together. So it's interesting the woman element mm. there. Um, we also get the introduction here of a common vampire trope, which is the anagram, because right, of the famous one being Dracula and Alucard, which is first used in Universal's 1943 film Son of Dracula, which the movie there literally opens with Van Helsing pointing to the anagram on uh, it's like a luggage tag on a train, and he is pointing to it and he goes, oh, Alucard spells Dracula. So it's like, it's not a mystery. There's the Jerokian um, thud, the, the, um, the Discworld novel thud. Later, Vimes, when he's yeah. recruiting a vampire, they've spelled their name backwards and there's a this irony of like, did they really think that fools anyone? But like that is embedded in the fiction, like where it starts, like Alucard never fooled anyone. Yeah. Um, but yes, in Carmilla, you have Carmilla is the anagram of Countess Malacra. So that's something that Carmilla introduces. I was going to mention Dr. Acula from Scrubs, but I don't care. <laughs> is that a thing? That's hilarious. <laughs> I've never watched Scrubs, so that's funny. Yeah, yeah. He, no, that's his, he's writing a screenplay. It's like a running joke that he's writing um, a screenplay throughout the series called about a vampire doctor called Dr. Acula, okay. who the solution to every, every illness is a blood transfusion. Yeah. <laughs> funny. Scrubs is very funny, but it has aged poorly. Yeah. As Paul Meehan in his very good 2014 book, The Vampire in Science Fiction Film and Literature, points out, Lefanu's later framing of Camilla as part of the journals of occult detective Dr. Martin Hesselsius in his short story collection In a Glass Darkly from 1872 um, also makes Hesselsius the first man of science to be connected with vampirism in horror literature, providing an obvious blueprint for Stoker's Van Helsing and the slew of psychic sleuths and scientific ghostbusters that follow, um, which are parodied and subverted in Carpa Jugum, right? Mm. I think we're going to talk more about Modley Oates and his whole thing. I wonder if we revisit him when we get to um, Small Gods and talk more about Omnianism. So maybe we'll come back to him there. But yeah, the idea of um, the scientific investigation of vampires actually predates Dracula as well. But there's no dancing around it. Dracula's the big one. So why don't we talk about Dracula? Written by Bram Stoker, published in 1897. So right at the turn of the century there, because it's the story about modernization and progress, as we discussed. So yes, the traditional portrait of uh, Dracula is alluded to in Carpet Juggling by the portrait of a tall, thin, grey-haired man in evening dress and a red-lined cloak. He looked quite distinguished in a distant, aloof sort of way, and there was the glimmer of a lengthened canine on his lower lip. So this is the, the common view of Dracula, which... As much as Bela Lugosi is the go-to guy, I think this picture particularly, especially just referring to color, because all the mm. Bela Lugosi films are in black and white, so red-lined um, cloak, this is referring to the Hammer Horror films of the 60s, which, having been watching them all recently, it really is quite amazing Like just how much of the cultural image of Dracula is drawn from that one specific film mm. and film franchise. But yes, in going forth to Dracula, we need to go back to Byron, because... There may have been a, if if not direct, a fairly predominant indirect Byronic influence, or Byron influence, I should say, on um, Ram Stoker while he was writing Dracula. As the editors of the 2008 McFarlane facsimile edition of Bram Stoker's Notes for Dracula, Robert 18 Bissang and Elizabeth Miller observe that Bram Stoker followed the literary convention of making his anti-hero a member of the aristocracy, as you were saying, joining a plethora of na nasty counts such as those in Radcliffe's Mysteries of Udolpho and the Italian, Shelley's The Sensi, Byron's Manfred, and Polidori's Ernestus Berchtold. There he is. My boys. <laughs> Yeah, this is this character archetype, right? Obviously, comes from the Gothic villain, but also from the Shelley Byron yeah. romantic tradition. Yeah, there's also Count Azo von Kleckka, 
in The Mysterious Stranger and Countess Karnstein in Le Fanu's Camilla, which predate Dracula. So, yeah, this aristocracy thing, I think you were right to pick up on that because, yes, as much as Dracula is about immigrants, it's also about an, an upper class thing. Mm. And in Stoker's Library, there were copies of Byron's uh, Child Harold's Pilgrimage, a copy of Hoffman's Weird Tales, which includes uh, The Sandman, the proto-Frankenstein story um, about the automaton, but not uh, Hoffman's Vampirismus, which is sort of a an exploration of vampirism there. Um, two copies of Shakespeare's complete works, uh, the complete works of Robert Louis Stevenson, a satire of Goethe's Faust by F.M. von Klinger called Faustus, His Life and Death and Descent into Hell. Do you know this one? No, I, I made a note before to go look into it. Oh, okay. And an undated copy of Frankenstein, interestingly subtitled The Modern Man Demon, um, which I thought was interesting because it sort of uh, makes more explicit rather the original subtitle, the correct subtitle is The Modern Prometheus. The Modern Man Demon makes it a satanic story rather than a Promethean story. Yeah, I made a note to look into that as well because it's probably some sort of pirated version where they've just changed it around. Like this happened a lot, so and that these sort of things, like knowing people's libraries and what which pirated edition they have, is what I like to do. So right, well, yeah, and this is this is interesting to us and perhaps no one else. But this like man demon because Prometheus is a demigod, so rather than a man god, he is a man demon. This is saying Frankenstein is is evil. He's bad. Yeah. So that just that that one subtitle can reframe the whole story. Interesting stuff. Interesting. The editors of the facsimile edition also suggest that Dracula's diabolical demeanor may have been inspired by the English stage actor Henry Irving, who was famed for his ability to capture the awful horror of the theatre's great villains, including an especially Faust who reportedly played almost 800 times, with a deleted scene from Toga's typescript also referring to the figure of Mistopheles in the opera. Nice. So yeah, we really are getting this like... The bar, the Byronic, romantic, gothic sort of tradition clashing with a bit of theatrical one. Like when I was sort of picking up on the parallels between the Phantom of the Opera and Vampires and Dracula when we were discussing Masquerade, that's really because like so much of Dracula comes from the theatre. Yeah. Both like in its adaptations, but also, yeah, where we're seeing that it was maybe influenced by theatrical presentations as well. Um, Some other literary influences beside Byron are sort of hard to identify, right? Stoker's notes do not mention any of his literary inspirations, um, with the exception of Carmilla, and it's difficult to pinpoint any exact sources. It seems likely that he would have read Varney given how popular it was. Mm. It's also likely that he read uh, Theophile Gautier's La Morte Aramus, translated as Claramond in 1882, which has three vampire women. So the Brides of Dracula perhaps comes from that story. And also the Transylvanian setting perhaps comes from The Mysterious Stranger as well as uh, Dumas. But The Mysterious, uh, the vampiric protagonist of the mysterious stranger is also a tall pale thin aristotic vampire called azor von klatka <laughs> who has superhuman strength does not eat ordinary food inhabits a remote castle that is surrounded by wolves under his control and has an affinity with bats he can become a cloud of mist can enter dwellings only after being invited in and inspires a mixture of attraction and repulsion in his victims producing a state of lethargy and is pursued by a fearless vampire hunter so this is, this is pretty like spot on that that's dracula right yep <laughs> yeah dracula was maybe not this big original thing like we're sort of getting a pastiche here yeah 
I'm really into pastiche at the moment. (laughs) (laughs) You're so into pastiche right now? So deep in pastiche. (laughs) Yeah. So when, like, when you think about things get lost to time, like, all we remember of the 19th, even Vardy's been lost. It's just Dracula, Camilla, and maybe Ruffin if you're, like, into it. Mm. But there there were all these things that Stoker was taking from. This wasn't some kind of, like, spontaneous inspiration. And Dracula's gone on to be the the definitive vampire archetype. Um, I mean, the modern vampire in the year Twilight romantic vampire, but also your modern brooding, um, sympathetic, Byronic vampire is pretty far removed from this original gothic villain Dracula sort of thing. Because as Vlad says in Carpet Juggling, he says, we won't see his luck again with any luck. <laughs> so another sort of illusion or an apocryphal illusion that we get to uh, Dracula in Carpet Juggling is that one of the main vampires is called Vlad, right? Which is an allusion to Vlad Tepes. The this is Vlad the Impaler, who Dracula is reputedly based on, and in a lot of modern vampire fiction is equated with. Right, and in folklore of Discworld, Prussia and Simpson state that Stoker stole the Count's name from the real life Vlad Dracula, also known as Vlad Tepes the Impaler, one of the great warrior princes of Romanian history. This is one of those things everybody knows about vampires mm. that Pratchett is citing or quoting without citation, because Stoker indeed discovered the name Dracula in William Wilkinson's account of the principles of Wallachia and Moldavia, uh, which claims that Ladislas, king of Hungary, preparing to make war against the Turks, engaged Voivod Dracula to form an alliance, his troops ultimately being joined by 4,000 Wallachians under the command of Dracula's son. Cool. So what Wilkinson's claiming here is that Dracula in the Wallachian language means devil, um, the surname being given to any person who rendered himself conspicuous by the courage, cruel actions, or kind. So this is the mighty warlord Dracula. And this is Vlad Tepes that Wilkinson's text is talking about. As the editors of Stoker's Notes point out, though, the three instances of Dracula in Wilkinson's text refer to different people. They refer to Vlad Tepes, but also his son, who is also named Vlad. <laughs> Yet Wilkinson never refers to them by name as Vlad, only by Dracula and the Voivod. And the word Dracula never appears in any other source cited in Stoker's Notes. So, like, while it's technically correct to say Dracula is based on Vlad the Impaler, like, not really. He took the the name from a historical title, and that is it. So this is one of those things everyone knows about vampires that that isn't technically true. Yeah, the idea that um, Dracula was based on Vlad the Impaler was popularized by uh, the academic Radu Floresco in his 1972 book In Search of Dracula. Now, Radu Floresco, I have a particular bone to pick with, because he's the dipple guy. Um, And Alice is nodding knowingly, but Radu Floresco gets big off this book that says, hey, I found this cool thing where Dracula's based on on Vlad the Impaler. Impaler. Later, like 20 or 30 years later, I think it's in the 90s, he writes another book called In Search of Frankenstein, which claims that Mary Shelley specifically based the character of Frankenstein on this guy uh, called, I can't remember his first name, but he, he's Dipple, who was this like scientist who was reputed to do experiments with body parts at a castle called Castle Frankenstein, which all seems very convenient and neat and good, except there is absolutely no record the Shelleys ever knew of this castle or visited or anything and his entire evidence is that well they visited a nearby town so they must have gone there except that it was like a two-day trek Mm. and they had a night stay over and he cites secret pages of Mary Shelley and Claire Mm. Claremont's diary that only he has access to that don't exist and the things he quotes from the public available versions of their diary are inaccurate and the guy I don't know if it's him or if it's another guy that he cites but someone tied up in all this actually like owns the Castle Frankenstein and is marketing it as a tourist attraction so completely dodgy yeah it's just one of those random coincidences yeah Um, so it seems like this the In Search of Dracula thing I haven't read it I did a flick through it but like 
his scholarship is trash, but it seems like there is something here where he's going through Stoker's things and drawing this connection, but then, like, his leap to, therefore, Dracula is Vlad the Impaler um, yeah. is completely ridiculous and unfounded. In um, the Frankenstein Chronicles, Dipple is the bad guy. So I don't know. Someone must know about it somewhere. Um, yeah, it, it, there's been a few pop culture mentions of it in like the last five years or something, but it mm. didn't catch on as much as this uh, Vlad the Impaler thing, which enters vampire literature with um, Fred Savaghan's The Dracula Tape, which we're going to talk about in a bit, and Dan Simmons' uh, Children of the Night, Oh, which I bring up because the hero priest in that book, Michael O'Rourke, is an amputee. And I just thought that was interesting because we were talking about Phantom of the Opera and how oh. um, people with disabilities are demonized. This is, I have an example of an, an amputee hero dragon, uh, vampire slaying priest. So apparently he's in a series of books by Dan Simmons there. But yeah, in the, in the acknowledgements at the end of this book, Children of the Night, which is from 1992, Simmons says, finally, I would like to acknowledge my debt to Radu Arfalasco and Raymond T. McNally, whose writings have almost single-handedly renewed interest in the historical Vlad Dracula. And I recommend their books to the interested reader. Thanks to the research of these men and other scholars, I can say that all of the memories I ascribe to Vlad Dracula in this book are true. Bullshit. Also, who are the other scholars? Come on, give us a proper bibliography, you bastard. Yes. Mm. However, Simmons does clarify that his one caveat for the serious Dracula Seeker is that the caption under the photograph of the apparently only extant bust of Vlad Tepes uh, Vlad Tepes on page 170 of Dracula Prince of Many Faces this is another book version by uh, Floresco about Dracula says that the statue is to be found in the village of Copentini but in truth the bust is to be found not in the shadow of Castle Dracula but across from the old palace grounds in Trigoro State some 100 kilometers away are we going backpacking? Are we going to see this bust? Well, we're not because it's not near the, the Dracula castle. This is uh, the same thing as Mary Shelley it, it must have visited the castle. He's going, you must read this book. Everything in it's true. And that's why I can say my historical fiction is true. But then goes, oh, but this one thing is wrong by a hundred Ks. See, that's why I'm really, really sus about this Fall of the House of Byron book. <laughs> like, did he eat his dog? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, do you want to tell us the story about the eating the dog? So Byron, famous Byron's great-grandfather... Jack was like the second or the second son and he joins the navy at 17 and his literal first voyage gets shipwrecked on an island in the middle of buttfuck nowhere and they starve for a year and then finally some natives help them out and they kind of make their way home and it takes him five years to get home he's this long lost brother who eventually turns up and he has all these amazing stories however that first year of starvation really did a number on him because he goes off into the bush one day and he kind of comes back with this dog and he has this great friendship with this dog and it's always trotting around after him and then one day the other like seamen enter his tent and they're like give us the dog and he's like no and then they take the dog by force and at this point I'm crying and they eat the dog and then he goes with them and eats the dog too because that's how hungry he is and like he feels bad but then a week later they didn't eat the paws and they kind of left them to rot in the sand he goes back and he de- it says devours the paws and I'm just like whoa that's enough for tonight <laughs> so there's some great stories about all the Byrons who were all bastards but um, that one really hit home. While, while we're on it, I've got a note here. I want to know more about Byron's Blood Bowl. Oh, yeah. Which is something you bring up on the Manfred episode um, of The Devil's Party. But um, tell us about Byron's Blood Bowl. I, I, okay, so Byron catches his favourite, Missolonghi, 
obviously one of the one of the so-called cures for fevers back then was to just bleed people um they, this was their uh their fix all and they took something like four liters of byron's blood and you have six liters in your body and there's a painting i don't know that it's real or whatever but he, there's this large porcelain bowl that byron is being like dramatically drained into and i don't know if the bowl is real but josh has glommed onto it as like this is the holy grail of romanticism and we need to find byron's blood bowl yeah i want to write um some kind of like romantic Byron vampire historical fiction novel um, called Ready Player One. (laughs) 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 Alice won't let me. (laughs) My other fun Byron story while we're here is that I have um, um, a pirated edition, a Galignity edition of Byron, which is very cool. But in it is a newspaper clipping from a while ago. They pulled up Byron's body to check which of his legs was the deformed one because apparently they'd forgotten or didn't keep records or something. And it turns out it was his third leg. <laughs> it was his third leg. Um, I don't remember now, but yeah, there you go. Diddly do, diddly do, diddly do, diddly do, I think that was horrible, but um, I thought that was good. I don't know. Maybe it's the Zoom delay. It's had a way out of time for me, but we have an excuse because I sound like shit because I'm locked in a closet and Alice has COVID. So. <laughs> been a week since we recorded the first half and things have happened i'm moving house um, i'm moving lungs moving lungs i don't know i'm getting some new ones that's the kind of covid wit you can expect i'm sorry my brain is absolute mush uh where we're at though is the start of the the 20th century Whoa. yeah because we got through the 19th century last time Although I think we started in like uh, the 1400s technically, so we got through a fair bit. And now we, we want to look at sort of the, the 20th century modernization of the vampire. That's what we're here to talk about. Yeah, so I think we got up, we got up to Dracula, essentially. We went, went through Dracula, which is 1897, uh, so right at the end of the 19th century. And we talked about how that is dealing with the modernization of the Victorian era and coming into the 20th century and everything there. As far as books and things go, there isn't really much at all during the uh, first half of the 20th century um, until like the 1950s and 60s we start to get some uh, innovations. Um, Some notable books in that period that I just wanted to point out because I thought they were interesting. Um, There's Bram Stoker's second novel, The Lair of the White Worm, which isn't a vampire novel but like kind of is from 1911. Did you know this one, Alice? No, I'm I'm sitting here going, Bram Stoker should have stopped, shouldn't he? This uh, he should have. Wonders. Yeah, because <laughs> yeah, this book has a reputation as being one of the worst books ever written. I made a couple of attempts and gave up and then just listened to the uh, 372 pages we'll never get back. Oh, God. Yeah, they, they go through it. And it, it's not as bad as some of the stuff they do. This is a podcast that goes through bad books that I've been listening to recently. Yeah, it's not as bad as some of the stuff they do, but it, it sound, it's very boring. There's a whole bunch of stuff about a mongoose. So he follows that up and it's sort of the white worm is, is the white monster and it's white because there's clay and there's like a lady who might be a ghost or a vampire, but then I don't think she is. It's really dull. Um, it was made into a movie starring Hugh Grant, I think in the nineties. So there you oh, go. It, it, it sounds like the title of a porno as well. <laughs> Lair of the white worm is my Am pants. I wrong? That's what I thought <laughs> when you first said it. I'm like, oh, we're moving into the porn edition of the podcast. Um, I think you could be wrong. I okay. <laughs> the white worm. I don't know. We might what have is to... it? Uh, the, the rule, rule 45 of the internet, everything is porn or something? Oh, no, if there is something, there is a porn version of it. Oh, yeah, that's it. Yeah. 
But I don't know. I think maybe you're t- revealing a bit more about Nick there if uh, you're go-to <laughs> for White Worm. <laughs> no. <Nah. laughs> I thought it was funny. Yeah, okay. <laughs> okay. There's also the book Lilith by George MacDonald from 1895, which does predate Dracula by a couple of years. Um, but I wanted to bring this up for a couple of reasons. One, um, George MacDonald was the guy who wrote uh, the Goblin book that we talked about that I then went and read and was really boring and not interesting. Um, but I read this book and this book's really interesting because it's called Lilith and that's another thing we talked about. And this book, uh, it's sort of like a, a precursor to the Chronicles of Narnia to the point where I think C.S. Lewis has said this is a direct influence on, on the Chronicles of Narnia because it's about a dude who goes through a cupboard to another world. So the white witch there is Lilith and she is a shape-shifting vampire cat lady. So sort of some H.G. Wells Island of Dr. Moreau leopard panther lady stuff going on. So yeah, between, for like about 50 years or so, between Dracula, which is 1897, and probably I Am Legend in 1954, which is the next significant influential vampire novel, there really isn't anything. You do get a bit of development in the pulp novels. Um, I think Lovecraft has a couple of vampire stories, and um, you get C.L. Moore's uh, Shamblau, which is uh, sort of a science fiction feminist uh, it's a version of vampire tropes that is maybe the start of the like vampires from space trope that is um, is a pretty minor thread in vampire fiction. Hmm. So yeah, you get these sort of pulpy stories, um, but no significant long form literary works for about fifty years, right? Um, which is quite a um, gap, especially when you consider how prevalent vampire fiction is now and during the second half of the 20th century. What are prevalent and um, significant during the early half of the 20th century, though, of course, are the movies. Mm-hmm. The earliest and most significant of which is, of course, uh, the German film Nosferatu from 1922, which is turning 100 this year. There's lots of Nosferatu things out there in the um, uh, vampire academia land or conferences and things like, we're celebrating Nosferatu! And yeah, I think I think we mentioned this in the first part, but Nosferatu, you, you haven't seen it, have you, Alice? <laughs> no. Um, it's very good. Um, but yes, the, the character Count Orlok, the vampire from that movie, is referenced in Carpa Jugulum, the, the, the Strigoi painting of the vampire with the bald head and the dark rim staring eyes and two teeth like needles and the ears like bat wings and fingernails that hadn't been trimmed for years. This is Count Orlok from Nosferatu. Which, do you, do you know about Nosferatu? Like, just in general, what it is? Yeah, you're doing the, you're doing the fingers, creepy fingers, yes. Creepy fingers, <laughs> the fingernails are what's coming. He's on my vampire shirt, what I have. Um, oh, cool. Yeah, it's, it's an adaptation of Dracula, but they couldn't get the rights because... Well, they were, it's a small, like, independent German studio, essentially. Uh, but they made it anyway, because they're like, screw you, we're German. The, the story's all kind of muddled, and, and I haven't looked into it that well, but the general, like, gist, or the legend of it is that the Stoker estate sued them into oblivion to the point where the film, all copies of the film, were ordered to be destroyed. Wow, that's dramatic. Yeah, and until, like, the digital age... This film was not widely available, right? Because there were a few surviving copies, but there was no way to distribute them um, until it went out of copyright and also, like, there was the technology to um, produce multiple copies of it. So I I don't remember when it got brought back, but I I, I sort of remember there being a time where, oh my god, Nosferatu is available. And then I watched it and it's very good. It also offers us a bit of a connection to Phantom of the Opera, keeping with the Witcher series Pratchett theme here, um, because in Andrew P. Williams' 1996 article reviewing the second
sexual other in the fandom of the opera and Nosferatu. Uh, as they know, the first significant film adaptations of both Dracula and the Phantom of the Opera, being Nosferatu and the Universal uh, Phantom of the Opera film from 1925. Uh, there, there is a lost silent Phantom of the Opera film from 1916, but the first influential and available one is the universe one from 1925 both it and nosferatu williams says each illustrate challenges to patriarchal sexual authority from horrifying others who must be eradicated in order to preserve the restrictive codes of sexual purity so yes i thought that was interesting there just essentially saying that the phantom of the opera is a vampire in in everything but like blood sucking I thought this also offered us a connection back to Carpajugulum in that, yeah, the, what Williams is saying is the enemies in these movies, uh, Count Olock and the Phantom of the Opera, represent this, like, infringement on the sexual order, right? Well, I think we were saying in the first part about how Dracula is the patriarchal order, mm. but he's also, like, a foreign patriarchal order, right? Mm. He's, he's a patriarchal threat to the patriarchy. <laughs> that these characters also represent that, which isn't really saying much, given that the Phantom and, and um, Nosferatu are inspired by Dracula. But yes, I, I guess that sort of points toward Grady being the virgin crone and Agnes being the virgin who resists. Mm. These, these are the two characters that have power in Carpajugum to actually fight the vampires. But by the way, on, we're talking about Granny being like hardcore because she is both the Virgin and the Crone. Hilda is kind of like, um, uh, blah, 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 is characterized as that in Sabrina. And like, they don't make anything of it. They just kind of hint that, oh, she's more powerful for these things. And then she gets married and it's strange. And I'm like, hmm, Josh stuff. That's it. Who is, who is Hilda? Hilda is one of Sabrina's aunts. There's Zelda and Hilda. Right. Um, and she's the really fun one who works at the comic book store and falls in love with the dude who tends actually has a sex demon trapped inside of him. So As you do. Yeah. And she gets married. So she marries like, him she eventually. Becomes a, right. Because that's sort of the signaling her becoming the mother. Right? Yes. Yeah, because there's something. this whole sequence where they go forward in time and Sabrina has a vision and she sees what happens to everyone and it's and that's how they get the three in one from there. She's like, oh, that's how we defeat whoever they were defeating at the time is we have to bring our power together as three in one and they just grab people from each of the three and I'm like, why not just get everyone? Anyway, Maiden Mother Crone. What Charmed has taught me is that you don't need Maiden Mother and Crone, you just need three hot chicks. Hmm, okay. I mean, I guess Pipe is the mother, but I, I wouldn't describe any of them as crones or virgins. <laughs> Also, there's just not like virgins hanging around in my street to be used in spells. So, well, you don't know that. I'll go. I'll go door knocking. You're right. After COVID. <laughs> Williams also connects this idea of challenges to the patriarchal order to Frankenstein, in which they say men undertake the female role of human reproduction, comparing it to Dracula, wherein the vampire combines feminine with masculine sexual and emotional characteristics. The fan of the opera. Uh, where women see their own cultural position mirrored in the form of the and treatment of a monster. And I think that's really reaching. I'm glad you said that. I was like, Josh and I are going to have a disagree, but I don't have the no. energy to disagree. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I think that's some Gilbert and Gibbard bullshit. It is definitely some Gilbert and Gibbard bullshit. But you do get a lot of, I think the reason why I've put this here is that you do get a lot of scholarship these days um, and, and commentary, like pointing out Dracula as a, um, uh, what's, what's the word? Androgynous. Or in some ways hermaphroditic, but like people are projecting a, a sensuality and a and and an androgynous quality onto them. Like there's a lot of readings of like, oh, he's not only seducing Mina and and uh, what's her name, Lucy. Yeah. Also Jonathan. Yeah. Right. There's all this stuff about like he's seducing Jonathan, and I think that is one hundred percent retrospective 
projection from like a modern point of view where vampires are bisexual and um mm. sexually dracula is not sexy and seductive mm. he's a spooky dude yeah like and and i think he's very specifically male in the way that he spooks it is a very patriarchal vibe He's a patriarchal threat. He's a threat to the patriarchy, not because he subverts it in some kind of counter, like, homosexual way, Mm. in that he is, like, a more virile patriarchy. So he's the traditional gothic villain, not the modern take on the gothic villain, which is sexy. Yes. Well, he's- I don't think he's Byronic. He is a gothic villain who, as we're going to discuss soon, gets Byronized in the mid-20th century, and then I think all these modern readings are then projecting that onto Dracula. So, yeah, I I think this is maybe where all all readings are valid, but they're not necessarily accurate. (laughs) That's a nice way of putting it. We'll do that with our year 12 teachers. So he's not sparkly. All right. Yeah, and then, of course, there is the universal series of Dracula films beginning in 1931 with the, uh, yeah, just called Dracula, the film that stars Bela Lugosi, who famously does not drink wine. So yeah, but I'm going to talk more about these in the bonus episode I'm going to do with Maddie where we go through all the movies. So we'll talk more about that there. Um, but th- that's what's shaping um, vampire culture during the first half of the 20th century. But as we can see, these are all just iterations of Dracula, right? There's there's no innovation going on. There's no reimagining. It's just Dracula, more Dracula, another version of Dracula, so mm. on and so forth. To the point where the movie is an adaptation of the play, which is an adaptation of the novel, right? There's a lot of dilution going on there. Um, but somehow that becomes like the archetypal version. Whereas some of the stuff in the book, um, as we'll discuss later, is left out of, you know, the, the common conception of what everybody knows about vampires these days. Yeah, no, because I'm, I'm going to talk about... Um, I keep saying that they're going to do a third part. I don't know if either of us have got us in... Have it in us. But um, I wanted to talk about um, the different uh, tropes and how, where they get introduced along the line. I thought you might have something to say about the evolutionary perspective that Pratchett takes in Carpet Juggler, but we'll save that for the other episode if we do it. But by way of sort of illustrating this point is that vampires die from sunlight, right? Yeah. But they didn't until Nosferatu. Ah! The end of Nosferatu, where he opens the the blinds and the sun kills him. Spoilers for a hundred year old movie. <laughs> that is the first time a vampire ever dies from sunlight. Um, it's because just the end of the script was missing, like the last few pages of how it's meant to end. And then the dude was like, "Quick!" And again, I sort of believe it because it was like a small, just like some dudes making a film in Germany. So like, quick rewrite it, and the the um, not the director, the cinematographer apparently rewrote it and put in the scene of the sunlight killing Orlok and him fading out because he just wanted to do this cool new fade out trick that he'd done on his camera. <laughs> um, so it's a technologically prompted rather than like folklore prompted thing. But before that, sunlight had no effect on vampires, right? Hmm. Ruffin walks around in the day. Varney walks around in the day. Dracula walks around in the day. He does. He does. And it does say that he he has none of his powers during the day. But he he doesn't die by sunlight. But that is now something everyone knows about vampires. Because in the Hammer films, they've repromed the curtains and he dies from sun. But that's not from Dracula. That's from Nosferatu. Hmm. So, yeah, we'll talk about more things like that in the the next part if we ever do it. Something else that does come in um, in these films is the Igors. 
Yeah, I mean, this is a, is a um, Frankenstein thing as well. I think we've talked about it before, but to b- briefly rehash in hopefully English, obviously there's no Igor in Frankenstein. This is something that's added during the stage adaptations, which I think is when your Igor comes in or they're together or something. And at the same time, they make the creature more monstrous. They make Frankenstein more evil and less of like uh, an 18th century rationalist, enlightened scientist. Um, and then they get this weird kind of almost caliban actually kind of sidekick who is enslaved by Frankenstein and does his bidding. Hmm. Caliban's an interesting connection that I had. I had a lot of Caliban this week. Well, I had a bit of Igor because in among trying to watch a hundred vampire films, I also watched uh, three Frankenstein ones because they are connected, right? Mm. This is the first shared cinematic universe is the Universal Monsters universe because in House of Frankenstein, the Wolfman, Dracula and Frankenstein all overlap. But yeah, and and we'll discuss more about the Igors uh, when we get to them in the later Discord novels. But in regards to the vampire tradition, they get introduced through the Universal Monsters films First in Frankenstein and then later in the later Dracula movies after the crossover happens. Um, So in the folklore of Discworld, Pratchett and Simpson say that there are a few echoes of the Eagles on Earth and those that are there are only to be found in modern cinema and comic strips, not in age-old folklore. However, they do support the idea that an Eagle once worked for a Dr. Frankenstein who was definitely crazy on a job which involved a great deal of stitching body parts together and exposing them to lightning and that the Doctor wouldn't have gotten far without his help. Except that Frankenstein did just fine in the novel where, as you said, no Igor appears. Frankenstein is not crazy. There is no lightning. Right, so this is things everyone knows about Frankenstein now. Yes, with the bolts in the neck and the, yeah, crazy scientist. Yeah, I mean, watching these movies, I was actually surprised by, like, the the portrayal of the creature is quite sympathetic. Yeah. He's not really a monster. They do retrain, retain his, like, sympathetic victim stance, and I'm not really sure how he became such a monster in popular culture, because the movies, yeah, they don't. He, he's sort of more like the Hulk, mm. where like he goes into rages and smashes things, which he does in the book as well. Because he talks and things, and he says, like, I feel bad. He learns to read, and he learns to talk, and he, he has, like, friends and stuff. So I was, yeah, quite struck by how non-monstrous the monster is in the movies as well. I wonder if it's because people would see, like, the graphics from the film um, and the culture, but not actually have watched it or read it or known it. But yes, as, as you said, the character of, of Ego, in fact, originated from the earliest Frankenstein theatre adaptation, Presumption, or The Fate of Frankenstein from 1823, and was later popularised in James Whale's 1931 Frankenstein film, where he was called Fritz. Is that some racist German thing? I don't think. Well, I mean, they were probably just picking another German name because Frankenstein's German, right? Is it an American film? Yeah. So it's it interesting, though, in 1931, they would jo- uh, pick a German name, you know? Yeah, maybe. Good point. Something I hadn't thought about. I'm sure there's someone out there who's like, yes, that's exactly why they did it. Because <laughs> I know there was a while, yeah, there was a while where they just picked Japanese names to make the bad guy or whatever. And over in Japan, they were like picking, you know, John Smith. Yeah, the Russian bad guys in, in um, yeah. James Bond during the Cold War and stuff. Yeah, okay, you're probably onto something there. But yeah, the, the later non-whale directed Frankenstein sequels, Son of Frankenstein from 1939 and The Ghost of Frankenstein from 1942, however, did feature an assistant named Igor, but spelled with a Y, so Y-G-O-R, who was played by Bela Lugosi, famous hey. for playing Dracula, right? <laughs> but rather than a hunched over surgeon, as we think of Igor as these days... Igor, with the Y in the Frankenstein films, um, is a blacksmith who has a broken neck and a twisted spine as the result of a botched hanging. And by the fourth Frankenstein film, ends up having his brain, he tricks Frankenstein. Or By that point, it's not Frankenstein because he got burnt down. It's like, 
a descendant or relative of Frankenstein played by the same dude who's come to like make amends for Frankenstein, who's just Frankenstein. It's a whole thing. But Igor then manipulates him into transplanting Igor's brain into the creature's body <laughs> so that he can like take over things as the monster. So that's maybe where the more monstrous Frankenstein idea comes from. But yeah, that that's also gives us a bit of precedent for Igor's brain transplants in Carpajokulum. Pretty cool. And yeah, the, the Igor character doesn't appear too often in later vampire stuff outside of these universal monster films. He is parodied in a notorious... Uh, pedophile Roman Polanski's 1967 parody film uh, The Fearless Vampire Killers and the terrible 2014 Van Helsing film. So bad. But he's not really part of the canon anymore. Mm. I think... He's something that's been left behind, but does go on to play a significant role in the Discworld books. And and the Eagles are really interesting because, as Pratchett and Simpson note in the folklore of Discworld, the Eagles' general denial of bodily integrity seems to result in a denial of individuality, which gives us an inversion of the traditional gothic characterization of people with artificial implants as villains, which we talked about in the in the masquerade thing, mm-hmm. which as Peter Hadrew argues in his 2020 article, Terry Pratchett's Thought Experiments About the Body, also expresses a general desire for a whole body and a fear of losing that integrity, albeit while also endorsing and participating in eugenic and genetic experiments that are banned in most countries. Thoughts? Uh. (laughs) There's a lot there, right? (laughs) I'm still on the sentence about general denial of, but I've had to read that six times. Um, well, it's like some identity theory stuff, right? The egos, yeah. like, they're not their body, but their whole identity does revolve around their body. Like, what makes them an ego is the way they treat bodies, but because the bodies are so disposable to them. That's Simone de Beauvoir shit. <laughs> I mean, I think it's more, um, your body is not, well, it's Descartes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and duality and stuff. But it's it's like, we don't have time to unpack it here, but there is something really interesting going on with the egos being at once detached from and defined by their bodies. Mm. It's quite interesting. Treating them as disposable, but also essential. Pratchett and Simpson also argued that the ego's solidarity is extended to other living creatures because what they regard as valuable is life itself, which of course is interesting to me from an animal rights perspective. Although, as Pratchett and Simpson point out, ego's dog Scraps and Carpet Juggling is the only example where their general cherishing of life is extended to an animal. Hmm. As Pratchett and Simpson also point out, Igor doesn't just preserve Scrap's life, but experiments with the body to make his pet happier. Is it moral to give a dog two tails? Does it want two tails? Uh, well, it seems seems like Scrap's does. Okay. Um, which brings us back to the orcs in Unseen Academicals, who are created through ego-assisted genetic design and considered inherently and irreparably evil. So why couldn't they have been happier by giving them an extra tail? Yeah. Hmm. Well, are they happy with their claws? I don't know. <laughs> Nut, Nut didn't seem very happy, did he? He didn't. He didn't, so take away the claws. Moreover, as Hedger observes, Nut is liberated by Uberwald's vampire queen, Lady, Lady Margalotta, through um, his cultural education, suggesting that the orc's behavior seems to depend on social demands mediated by education more than their physical body. So here, again, in that, that contrast between the eagles and scraps and, and the orcs, we get this idea of progress, right? The, yep. So, yeah, Pratchett's honing in on the, in this book with regard to vampires, but he is um, doing a, it's sort of like, a, you know, centrism sitting on the fence sort of stuff. Like, what about both sides? Maybe the answer's in the middle. But I, I do think he's given quite a complex critique of these ideas. But to wrap it all up here, uh, Williams, in the article about Nosferatu and the Phantom of the Opera, also notes that in an often edited out segment, Van Helsing ends the movie by saying to the audience... 
Just a moment, ladies and gentlemen. Just a word before you go. We hope the memories of Dracula won't give you bad dreams, so just a word of reassurance. When you get home tonight and the lights have been turned out and you are afraid to look behind the curtains and you dread to see a face appear at the window, why just pull yourself together and remember that, after all, there are such things. (laughs) Nice. Yeah. Which is like campy and, and cool, which is what this movie is. But also, this is Puck at the end yeah. of Midsummer Night's Dream. Yeah. So we're getting a, like, it's all a soup, as you say, but it's it's all a mishmash of all these things that Pratchett have, has been exploring previously in the Witches novels do feed into vampire literature. And maybe that's only because we're looking for them. These things are so culturally pervasive that if we examined anything, maybe we'd find traces of all these. But I do think there there is, like, I'm quite struck by the logical progression of the things Pratchett goes through in the Witches series that I'd never really noticed before. I do think they feed into each other. I guess, like, we are Western culture. <laughs> like, so <laughs> the fact that all the things in Western culture keep appearing shouldn't surprise us too much. But, yeah, it's beginning to be quite a wide dish of things, so it is surprising. A, a wide dish, but, like, also a, a very narrow, like these are the big things that influence everything mm. like when, when you think about the entire history of all culture that's ever been produced and all the things that we don't even know about but then even the things we think about like who gives a shit about percy shelley these days yeah nobody except for yeah. me like he was the big guy he was the poet but it was byron and mary shelley who have the like who are still relevant well i think he was the big poet in his circle and amongst his people, but he wasn't broadly known. I think that's important as well. Like, he is is, um, appreciated by academics and people who study the poetry of the time, but his influence, like, broadly, nothing. Intrinsically, there are little things, like a a lot of poets do take from Shelley, but they have to have read him and been learned and educated. Like, you can't read his poetry without education. So, like, at his time, um, yeah, not a big deal, and still not a big deal. (laughs) Because he didn't, he barely sold anything. Mary Shelley sold more from the first edition of Frankenstein than he did in his entire life from any of his poetry and it's that's very funny yeah. I mean Dr- Dracula and Frankenstein I think have like a strong claim to being the two most culturally influential books I, I think ever. now I think at the time they were just they were obsessed with Heart of the Midlothian and, and Scott um, and, and going to see Shakespeare I mean I think Dracula was pretty successful like straight away through the, the theatrical thing but yeah Frankenstein took 80 years to kick in through through the theatre and then through movies right it's yeah. the and some would say that's the dilution of culture but it's also the accessibility and the distribution and things exactly um, but for all this I, I do think the most influential Dracula adaptation are that is the Hammer Horror Dracula films, um, which a lot of the stuff in although everyone goes to Lugosi as as the guy, um, it really is Christopher Lee who plays Saruman in the Lord of the Rings films, um, and does have a power metal side project that's a rock opera about the ascent of, of like King Arthur and stuff. Um, or did he's the picture we're getting of the old count in Carpa Juggalum is very much the uh, Hammer Horror Dracula as played by Christopher Lee, which I'll talk about more with Maddie in the, the bonus episode about the Dracula films because I've, I've watched about 12 Hammer Horror vampire films and I've still got three to go and only like two or three of them are already good. Oh. <laughs> 
We, we, we recorded the first half of the bonus episode where we listened to 80. Oh, you said, and then you were going to push it to 100 or 90 or something? But they're like, the extra 10 were like, well, we want to watch all those, the Hammer Horror ones, because we enjoyed the ones we watched, and then we watched them all. They're so bad. <laughs> <laughs> all right, I have a note about 70s lesbian vampires, but that is just to say that that was another thing that happened. There were, we got movies based on Camilla. Um, I'll talk more about these in, in the bonus episode. And, and in addition to lesbian vampires, the, the other threads you get being developed uh, during this gap are we get plant vampires, beginning with The Man-Eating Tree by Phil Robinson from 1881. Um, we do have a reference to watermelon vampires in Carpa Jugulum, which are apparently a thing from folklore, but I don't know if they've ever made an appearance in a literary work other than um, Carpa Jugulum. Uh, but yes, Carpa Jugulum could technically belong to the plant vampire tradition if you want to invoke that. And the space vampires, which, as I mentioned, sort of starts with Shamblau and, and the pulp stuff in the early 1920s, but something that's often overlooked, including by myself, until I read a book and was like, huh, is uh, War of the Worlds is a vampire book. Oh. Yeah, because the Martians come to his face to, to suck all our blood. That do it? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's like, a, it's a pretty obvious one. And that predates Dracula. Oh, no, same year as Dracula. It's serialized. So... Uh, that's interesting to me. Um, and the, the other offshoot thread that um, Pratchett nor I are particularly interested in are energy vampires, who are often tied up with the, the space vampire stuff. But that the, the earliest significant uh, version of that trope does predate Dracula, and we've mentioned it before. It's uh, Demario's Trilby from 1894, which was, of course, the, the sort of prototype for the Phantom of the Opera. So again, it's all swirling and, and coming together around these central influences. But there, there are two major developments in the vampire tradition that kick in around um, the mid-20th century. Uh, one is the, the scientific vampire, which there, there are some precursors, but the big one, the early, most significant one, is, of course, uh, Richard Matheson's I Am Legend from 1954, uh, which I wrote my honors thesis about. Uh, we'll talk more about that next part, maybe, but the point of that book is essentially what's going on in Carpa Juggling, or what Pratchett's gesturing towards, is... Have you, have you read I Am Legend? No. Um, you should. It's great. It's very short. Huh. The, the main character is a biologist, and there's been a vampire plague, and then he goes and experiments to work out why all the things that happen to vampires happen. Why are they scared of crosses? Why does garlic work on them? And, like, provides scientific reasons for the way vampires work, which is what Van Helsing's doing in Dracula. Mm. But Van Helsing goes to folklore. Okay. Right, he goes to history and goes, well, why Why do they... And it's just, what well, garlic works because garlic has been said to work in, in folklore, right? And you get the Catholicism that gets brought in with Dracula as well, whereas... Um, I Am Legend is trying to uh, assert secular explanations for all the things that happened with Dracula. Uh, we're not going to talk any more about that strain with regard to Carpa Jugulum, because where that is really influential is zombies, right? Yeah. Dawn of the Dead, George Romero, the director, writer of that film, specifically says, I read I Am Legend and went and wrote Dawn of the Dead, and a lot of the tropes you see there with the, with the plagues and the viruses and the scientists are in zombie fiction, so it sort of branches off that way. But the other major 20th century intervention in the vampire tradition that comes a little bit later is the rise and development of the sympathetic vampire, which I was going to say is the dominant, but maybe was the dominant. We'll come back to that mm. uh, mode of, of vampire. And the vampire we would, uh, I think, be most familiar with, right, when we're saying people are projecting ideas onto Dracula, that he's this sexy, seductive, gender-challenging, troubled character uh, that's because we've read Interview with the Vampire or seen the film or whatever, and all, all the things that are influenced and are, and are projecting back that way. Um, 
So this is the transition, uh, like the Phantom of the Opera in that book that we were talking about, this is the transition of vampires from the gothic villain of Dracula to a sympathetic, um, seductive victim character, a Byronic character, if you will. Yeah, baby. And as with the Dracula films, this first starts in, in a visual medium with sort of TV sitcoms and characters. So you have the, the, the film hostess Vampire from 1950, but then you also get sitcoms like The Monsters and the Addams Family from 1964, and most significantly, Dark Shadows from 1966. Do you know this one? Are you familiar with Dark I, Shadows? I didn't know there was... I need to go watch all of it immediately. Uh, you don't, because there is over a thousand episodes. There are 1,225 episodes, 30 spin-off novels, and two movies all published between uh, 1966 and 72. And the vampires don't show up until 120 episodes in. What the fuck? <laughs> what do they do? Um, <laughs> so it was like an Adams Family, like, gothic... Because um, Adam, Adam's family doesn't have vampires in it, but it's the idea that, like, monsters... Monsters are real and they live in a family. Yeah, but they're, like, non-threatening, right? They're like us. It's the domestication of, of monsters and things. But in terms of vampires, so the Dark Shadows was just like a gothic sitcom. Mm. It was about a, a family or a girl who finds out that she, she moves to his mansion, the, the Collins mansion, or Collinswood, I think it's called. And, yeah, they're just stuff happens. Goth shit happens, right? Um, I'm sure you could tell me how it's all connected to Udolfo and, and um, Jane Austen and things. But no one liked this show. It was crap, right? It's going to be cancelled. Um, so they, they started doing something like, let's have a bit of fun. And they introduced a character, the vampire Barnabas Collins, who's introduced in episode 211. So 200 episodes into this uh, 1200 episode series. And he was um, originally intended as a villain. He's he's a big ripoff of Varney. His entire storyline where he's introduced and he's trying to acquire this manor that has a portrait that resembles him because it was him from years ago. This is all Varney the vampire. But Barnabas was so popular (laughs) that rather than killing him off, um, they renewed the show and he became the main character and became a sympathetic vampire who was like struggling with his um, addiction to blood and was striving to find um, a cure to his curse, like often through science and thing. And he has a whole stuff with, um, he's frequently pitted against his ex-lover, the witch Angelique, who cursed him and turned him into a vampire. Wait, did you watch all these? I, I watched the original arc where Barnabas Collins is introduced. So it was like 10 or so episodes there. They are like 15 to 20 minutes long. But they're, they're very slow. It is soap opera pacing. Oh, no thank you. Yeah, and then there is the, the Tim Burton movie from whenever with Johnny Depp and stuff, which is bad, but not as bad as you think it is. And that, that sort of like gives you the... Eh, no, it doesn't even give you a good version of the story. But yeah, so Barnabas Collins, played by Jonathan Fred, is introduced in episode 2011. As Mountain observes, Colin is arguably the first vampire to be given a history and a complex personality. Besides his bloodthirst, he has a moral sensitivity, the ability to show great passion and love, and is the victim of great suffering. So it's just the Byronic hero, but he can drink blood. Okay. Well, that's the thing he has to, like, that's his great sin that he's he's troubling. Arguably the first vampire, or arguably the first Byronic hero who drinks blood. Get it? I've just reversed it. That's all I did. Because I mean, with Lord Ruthven's face on Byron, but Lord Ruthven not is very not Byronic. sympathetic. He's Byronic in the sense that he's like, he's a dick, like Byron, but he's, he's not. He is Byron, yeah. He is Byron, yeah. No, he's he's not sympathetic. No. <laughs> uh, apparently at one point, Barnabas actually manages to escape being a vampire for a little bit while by siphoning off his curse into a Frankenstein creature. I haven't watched this one. Um, but that is a complete ripoff of the 1945 Universal film House of Dracula, what that already happens in. Okay. Because you do get a bit of 
Dracula and the Wolfman are looking for a cure in that one, but then it turns out they, or, well, actually, I think the Wolfman's a good guy, but Dracula's, like, still being a bit of a villainous turd who was trying to tricking everyone all along, so he's not um, sympathetic. But you do get these ideas creeping in, but Dark Shadows and Barnum's Collins is the first to really take it and run with it as a prolonged story. Um, but he was killed off at the end of the 1970 movie spinoff House of Dark Shadows by having a wooden stake driven through his back, which is a intensely gory scene i can watch this movie it's very violent but his body transforms into a bat and then vanishes in a post-credit scene right this is 70 years before that mcu or whatever (laughs) 40 years maybe i'm bad at time estimates he was meant to be revived in the sequel but uh fred was sick of playing the role so it never happened so yeah he's he's maybe the first and um a big deal at the time but like we were saying before no one remembers Dark Shadows now, and if they do, they think it's a shitty Tim Burton movie. The the sympathetic vampire, though, of course, was most influentially popularised in Anne Rice's 1976 novel, Interview with the Vampire. Um, but before we get onto that, though, there was a 1975 novel called The Dracula Tape uh, by science fiction author Frederick Thomas Saberhagen. Saberhagen, I think it's pronounced. So this is a book about Dracula telling his perspective of Bram Stover's story into a cassette tape. This is just like the the rewriting of Twilight and Fifty Shades from the dude's perspective, (laughs) but like, what, a hundred years old? Wow. (laughs) Um, They they also cover that in uh, 372 pages. (laughs) But yeah, there's that. But it's also, it's a lot like Interview with a Vampire, which is about a vampire telling his side of the story into a tape recorder. Also that, you're right. Hang on. Yeah. Um... Yeah, it's um, unlike uh, Anne Rice's book, though, which is like this broody story, Byronic story. The Dracula tape is kind of like, I don't know, it's it's really funny. I found it really funny, but that's because I um, listened to the audiobook and I think the narrator was maybe doing a lot into that. But there's some funny stuff in there where like Dracula's excuse, and of course he's a, um, what's the word, untrustworthy narrator. Unreliable? Yeah. Unreliable narrator, and maybe he's telling this story to sort of like, you know, as propaganda. But like, he's like, no, no, I wasn't trying to attack people and get into the house, and I, and I was prevented from invitations. They were having a heart attack, and I was desperately trying to get in, but I couldn't because no one would invite me, so I turned into a wolf so people would invite me, and then, um, uh-huh. and then I had to turn them into vampires because Van Helsing had been going around giving everyone blood transfusions before we knew about blood types. And been messing the whole thing up. So Van Helsing's the the real villain here. Yeah, it, but there's like funny stuff where he gets caught on the train by a conductor with like all his caskets in his luggage, and they're like, "Why, why? What's with all these coffins?" And he's like, "Oh no, they're, they're not coffins. Um, they're garden closets." <laughs> Because why, why just restrict clothes storage to the house when I have garden closets? And he's, like, claiming he's an entrepreneur thing. So I think it's meant to be, like, pretty tongue-in-cheek. Um, mm. And I had a good time with it. So I recommend that if people are interested. I can see, like, reading it and sort of rolling your eyes if you take it on face value. But I think if you read it as, like, a satire, it's pretty good. But yeah, this book comes out one year before Anne Rice's interview with the vampire, uh, which also had the vampire telling his story to a tape recorder. And as Melton notes... Soberhagen's Dracula differed strongly from both Dark Shadows and Anne Rice's vampires. He had no problem with his vampire state, no anguish about his uncontrollable drive, and no wish to change. He manifested little ambiguity in his situation, being a hero whose moral situation was rather clear. So yes, he's not doing the whole, oh, woe is me. He's just like, no, it's cool being a vampire. Yeah, so he's vibing and thriving. Um, there are nine sequels written to this book, the first of which I've just started reading today, uh, which is called The Holmes Dracula File. Any, any oh, guesses what that's off. about? <laughs> fuck off. 
No, something should be illegal. Okay. Ah, uh, yeah, so this is Dracula and Sherlock Holmes no. to solve a crime. Um, is it which good? is a thing in Dracula lore. Uh, so far, it's been pretty fun. I actually think, I wonder if it's a, if it's Dracula who's been kidnapped and Sherlock Holmes has, has to save him. But there are nine sequels, um, which I believe Sherlock Holmes is is a uh, recurring character. So there is something about Dracula's and um, Sherlock Holmes's. There's a there's a role-playing game called, uh, or like an improv comedy game called Four Sherlock Holmes's, one of which who is a Dracula. Nah. <laughs> and it's just like you do an improv scene and at the end you have to guess which Sherlock Holmes was a Dracula. Alright. Uh, so oh, I'm on board. <laughs> um, the Adventure Zone uh, podcast has some some good episodes where they play that. But yeah, there were nine sequels uh, to the Dracula tape written between 1978 and 2000 with Sam dying in 2007. Um, so he kept writing them up until his death pretty much. Imagine being the wife of that man, like, honey, could you go out and get a banking job so we can raise our family on something other than peanuts? I mean, I <laughs> like, guess he was doing all right if he was able to uh, keep writing them for so long. But, I was uh, just thinking that, but uh, yeah, either that or he's very rich, I guess, from inheritance. I don't know. No one knows uh, about this book except for me, so he can't have been too successful. Far more popular and well-known is Interview with the Vampire, which, yes, does does a couple of influential things. So along with the characterization of the vampires itself, this book is told from the first person, which the Dracula tape was as well. But until then, all these stories are from the outside, people seeing vampires and describing them as monstrous. And, mm. like, the first step of sympathication here is telling it from the first person perspective. So, like, we get a bit of that in Carpet Jungle where we get, like, the vampires monologuing about um, what they're doing. But it might be quite different if we got, like, a story from their point of view perhaps yeah yeah frankenstein you get the creature's perspective no i think it's a thing that's cool well it took him 150 years ago why don't we do this with vampires <laughs> <laughs> as well but yeah so rice's vampires are pretty definitively byronic they're sexy they're tortured they're gay or bisexual vibing and thriving <laughs> yeah there, there's of course the the famous um norm mcdonald review of interview with the vampire which is that it's not gay enough but, uh, yeah, that's, that's the film. In the books, the sequels at least, it's very explicit that uh, Lewis, and, Lewis and Lestat are lovers. Aww, um, and that Lestat is bisexual. Although in a 2011 interview uh, called Anne Rice on Sparkly Vampires, sorry, this is her response to Twilight, True Blood, and Werewolves, it says, Anne Rice claims that this, like, homosexual subtext was not deliberate. I mean, I guess until the sequels where she has uh, Lestat and Louis Pash on stage at the Big Rock concert. That seems pretty explicit. But um, uh, she says, I remember the year Interview with the Vampire was published. A young man came to me at Berkeley and told me he thought Interview with the Vampire was the longest sustained gay allegory in the English language. <laughs> that is something a university student <laughs> would say. <laughs> she says, I was kind of amazed, um, but it wasn't a conscious thing. <laughs> Any nominees for the longest sustained gay allegory in the English language? Is there anything in Don Juan? Yeah, I was thinking it must be Don Juan. Maybe Satan actually was in love with God. <laughs> oh, Ach- obviously Achilles and Patrick. I don't know. Yeah, yeah you're right. The Iliad. The Iliad's longer than um, yeah. the interview of that vampire. Jeez. Maybe not some of the sequels, which get pretty ridiculous. But uh, definitely the first book, yeah. Um, but yes, in the same interview from 2011, Anne Rice 
says if she had to do it over again, she would not use the word vampire in her novels, um, claiming that in 1976, when interviewed, the vampire was published. There was no vampire literature published in America. And there was no goth culture, and certainly there was no vampire lifestyle. And I'm not sure there is any vampire lifestyle today. As far as I know, vampires do not exist. As far as I know. (laughs) (laughs) Also, I'm not sure. I think this is either right in the middle or just... uh, No, this must be just after she's come out. She went through, like, a religious, like, 10-year thing. Because she's always been religious, but there was, like, a 10-year period. I think it's from, like, 2000 to 2010, where she went, like, no, I'm going, like, full Catholic and, like, denounced all her previous work as like sinful and everything was like horrible and then came back with a vengeance and was like nah I tried that shit for 10 years and like I believe in God and stuff but them Catholics are crazy and uh, vampires are cool yeah she says at the end of this interview she says oh by the way I'm working on a new novel it's about like aliens and Atlantis and shit (laughs) that's not the direct quote and then yeah the last book in um, the Vampire Chronicle series is The Prince Lestat and the History of Atlantis or something. What so okay. <laughs> I've read the first three books the, through to Queen of the Dam, but there's like ten down the thing and then just knowing that they end up with aliens in Atlantis is, is quite a um, connect the dots sort of. <laughs> but yeah, so Rice brings in the broody Byronic, you know, troubled, tortured vampire archetype in, saying she based it on the tradition of dark stories in the tradition of Shakespeare and Milton and Frankenstein. So again, My boy! She claims she didn't do much, like, reading about vampires. Um, the, the main one she was influenced by was uh, the sequel to the Bela Lugosi Dracula, Dracula's Daughter. Um, have you seen that one? No. No, because you haven't seen the first imagine. one. Uh, no, you it's quite good. Okay. It's about, because um, at the end of the first Dracula movie, Dracula gets killed by Van Helsing, right? Mm. And then the second movie, Dracula's Daughter, starts with this, like, Hungarian countess shows up. She's Dracula's daughter, but she has been, like, freed from her vampire curse because Dracula's been killed. And she's like, well, what do I do now? Like, I'm free. How do I start again? Mm. And she really has this reflective thing about her. So, uh, Amory says she, she watched this film about this beautiful daughter of Dracula who was also an artist in London and felt drinking blood was a curse. And that, that film mesmerized her and established to her what vampires were, that they were these elegant, tragic, sensitive people, and that she was really just going with that feeling when writing Interview with the Vampire and didn't do a lot of other research. So that gives us a pretty, like, people are claiming Barnabas Collins from Dark uh, Shadows is the first sympathetic vampire, but Dracula's daughter is not only a precursor, but also one that directly influenced Interview with the Vampire. Mm. Though I would say what's missing from this is Varney the Vampire. Because no one could be bothered reading it because it was so fucking long. It's so fucking long. I, I do have the uh, abridged version that I've made if you want of the first volume. <laughs> but um, Varney the Va- everything that happens in Into the Vampire happens in Varney the Vampire. Oh. Yeah, so I'm going to read a passage from Varney the Vampire right now. Because there's, there's a scene where... And he's kind of nefarious because Varney's whole thing is he's trying to get this family, I think I explained this before, but he's trying to get this family to move out of the mansion so that he can buy it and then sell it and pay off his debt to a guy who dragged him into the moonlight. So he goes and visits the the girl that he's been terrorizing to try and scare her out of the mountain. He goes, well, what if I just explain myself to her? So like the creature in Frankenstein? Like the creature in Frankenstein, like um, uh, Lewis in Interview of the Vampire. And then after that, yeah, in Varney the Vampire, they say, I much rejoice that you have had an interview with this mysterious being. Mm. 
For you have since that time been happier and more composed than I ever hoped to see again. And then she responds, Somehow since that interview I have not had the same sort of dread of Sir Francis Farney, which before made the very sound of his name a note of terror to me. His words and all he said to me during that interview, which took place so strangely between us, indeed I know not, tended altogether rather to make him, to a certain extent, an object of my sympathies rather than my abhorrence. So I want to go back even further and say Vani is definitively the first, or if not the first, is a precursor, sympathetic vampire. Like, that's written in the text. The problem being that he's manipulating her mm. in this situation. He's sort of making up a backstory. So it's a diff- It's a variation on the gothic hero that eventually becomes reality rather than a Machiavellian technique. Interesting. But yes, there are the, the Barnabas Collins story when he is introduced is directly the first act of Barney the Vampire and then where it develops ends up being Interview the Vampire. Now, I don't know if they could have read this um, thing because uh, it was like out of print until I think the 1970s, which is around when these books were being written, but I don't think it was like popularly distributed. So I don't know if they would have had access to Barney the, the Vampire, but like there's so much stuff in that that like it's very hard to think that it didn't like creep through through just like cultural osmosis mm. and, and influence somehow. But yeah, there are there are so many very specific crossovers. I mean, it's just the vernacular of the time, but calling the thing the interview with the vampire is something is yeah quite striking. But as for developing how the uh, modern vampires actually work, um, when asked how she developed her set of vampire rules. Anne Rice responded that she went along with what she had inherited from Hollywood, Mm. um, which perhaps gives us, you know, why Pratchett's vampires are so Hollywood-based is because the the modern literary vampires are also film-inspired. But she says, yeah, she went along with what she inherited from Hollywood, which is that vampires burn up in the sun. And she says, I didn't know that wasn't part of the original Dracula. So she just wrote it in and created this new vampire mythology. And she says, and the rest I sort of made up. Liar. She thought, <laughs> well, yeah, they, they don't really operate in the, in the ways that the the pre... Because um, Sarah Hagen's Dracula tape is doing the Dracula things. Same with I Am Legend, even though Dracula's not involved. He's going through the list of things in Dracula and explaining them. Whereas Amorous, I think, brings in a new kind of vampire, a new archetype. And she says that she thought if vampires responded hysterically to garlic or crucifixes... That wasn't as interesting as their being nihilistic and aesthetic and not having a magical response to something, but having definitive limitations and rules. So again, we're getting that built off I Am Legend and taking it out of the mystical realm into the secular scientific one. So the the first sequel to uh, Interview the Vampire, The Vampire Stat, which comes out in 1985, is very interesting, I think, at least for our purposes, because it's all about Satan. Uh-huh. I think I said this to you before, but you should really read this book, Alice. I will. When I, when I say you should read this book, that's not a, that's not the royal you. That's not the general you. If you're interested in vampires and Satan, you should read this book. No one else really needs to read it. But Alice needs to read this book because this is about the history of Lestat, who's the, like, cool, corrupt... He's the Byron vampire. I also realized, like, Louis and Lestat in Interview of the Vampire are Byron and Shelley. That's what's going on there. Mm, I had I had my um, suspicions. So Lestat is Byron. He's the cool dude who comes in and, and corrupts everyone. But it's just about him going around the world to all the different vampire covens, trying to work out what being a vampire is all about and arguing with them about Satan. Oh. Because right. <laughs> he's like, why are, you all, why are you all scared of crosses? And if you believe in God, then you believe in Satan and therefore Satan's real. So why don't we embrace Satan? And that's where um, Antonio Banderas, uh, Armand, who's a little cherub boy in the books rather than a big burly Spanish man. Um, he's like the leader of, of a... Um, 
yeah, a satanic cult, and they worship Lestat because Lestat dares to walk on consecrated ground and isn't plagued by the superstitions of, of mm. the vampires who are afraid of God. So he is very much portrayed as a satanic figure in the Milton satanic sense that he is defying God. But then he also, yes, uses that to convince them that Satan isn't real on and is like just this nihilist. Um, I think you'd find it very interesting uh, that other people maybe not so much because it is just dry dialogues about the nature of Satan. I mean, I've read Melmoth the Wanderer. I can read yeah. anything. <laughs> also, he's like a rock star. Okay. <laughs> That's not really in the book, but it, but it is like, it's the framing tale. It's like, Lestat woke up, joined a band, then told then wrote his history of, of Satanism. And then at the end, it's like, oh yeah, he was in a band. <laughs> I mean, wasn't there that whole satanic panic about, like, a rock is Satan or something for a while? So. Yeah, you're right. That, that would have been right in the middle of this. So, yeah, that makes sense. That's where all the um, the Hammer Horror films go. Uh, they, they do, like, five films where it's just the same story over and over again. Family goes to the castle, Dracula kills them, they kill Dracula, and repeat. And then, like, seven movies in, they're like, all right, modern day. And they bring him into the 70s, and it's like a, a 70s cop murder mystery starring Dracula. But, yes, the, the Satan is involved. They start investigating satanic rituals and things and that's right when the satanic panic's going on so yeah satanic panic is a big part of this vampire story as well that i don't think uh, pratchett's really engaging with at all oh yeah pratchett that's why we're here <laughs> we are and and just to, to bring it back if not to pratchett to fan of the opera and masquerade and things did you know that there was a musical version of interview with the vampire called lestat the musical <laughs> With music by Elton John, which opened on Broadway in 2006. And we thought maybe he wasn't gay. I think that's the... You got the Elton stamp of gay approval. Oh, my God. (laughs) What more could one expect of something new? A feast of saints and sinners. A homespun web of bold beginnings. This new world boasts a most collective stew. This New Orleans, this melting pot Is overflowing with cast-offs Who've been dragged or freely came across the waves And here there's fear in the streets As they shout out the windows Welcome to the new world Of the Cajun and the Creole Welcome to the new world You're Pretty good, huh? Oh my good, I mean, very terrible. Elton John's wet dream, yes, got it. <laughs> well, um, you might not be surprised now that unlike the runaway success of Fan of the Opera, <laughs> Lestat the Musical closed after only 39 performances <laughs> and uniformly negative reviews, including one published in the New York Post declaring it bloody awful. <laughs> Get it? Because it's bloody... <laughs> yep. Although, yes, this this also gives me an opportunity to mention my favourite vampire thing of all time, I think. So, I've been doing the carpet juggling. I've read, like, I think it's close to, like, 50 books at this point. Uh, 100 movies. But my favourite vampire thing remains the 2015 heavy metal rock opera concept album Dracula Swing of Death by Norwegian singer John Land and guitarist Trond Halter, which fucking owns, and you will be hearing a bit of it right now. Oh, it's 
So another, another early sympathetic vampire that I wanted to bring up is Chelsea Cabrini-Yarbo's series of novels starring sympathetic vampire Count Saint-Germain, based on the 18th century French alchemist of the same name. I, I think I sent you a message about this one. This is has strong ties to uh, the monk and Zafoya and things like that, because this one, the vampire's the good guy. He's a cool alchemist, and he's trying to be seduced and recruited by a group of bad alchemists who keep kidnapping virgins and sacrificing them on their altar below the church uh, in order to raise Satan and gain eternal life. I mean, we've all had that phase. <laughs> it's like, it's a really dry, boring Victorian, like, drama of manners sort of thing, and then, like, 60 pages in, satanic sacrifice. <laughs> like, full-on graphic monk thing, and you're like, ah, oh, that's what this book's about. Okay. Okay. Uh, yeah, so the first of these books, A Hotel Transylvania, was from 1978, so a few years after Interview of the Vampire and the Vampire Tape. Uh, and there are almost 30 sequels to this book that are still being written. No, stop. Uh, stop which, it. Yeah, well, <laughs> I stopped after one. Apparently, though, she tried to sell the novel in 1971, but publishers weren't interested until Interview was popular. So I don't know. Maybe there was, there was something definitely going on around the late 60s, early 70s, trying to sympathize these monstrous figures, but specifically vampires, and I don't really know why. Mm. Wait, all the, the line I've just seen is he could make love to women but had no semen. <laughs> all right, we'll get there. So uh, Melton describes uh, St. Germain as a romantic hero who developed ongoing relationships with women and could make love to them but had no semen. <laughs> Rather, he took their blood and, in fact, lived largely upon willing female donors. But there was one important limitation on his sexual life, in that the joys and benefits of the sexual sharing could only occur between a vampire and a non-vampire. So you don't get to come if it's also a vampire. Okay. Yeah, I'm not really sure why it can't be vampires or two vampires, because I didn't bother reading the sequels because the first book was bad. So yes, Melton concludes, Thus, while the vampire lived for many years, he could not bring his lover or lovers with him. But this is significant because this gives us the vampire as a romantic, mm. lowercase r romantic, as a, a love interest. Because Anne Rice's vampires don't even not have semen. They cannot get erections. No further questions. I'm just going to accept <laughs> that and move on in life. Whereas the vampires in True Blood and many modern vampire books where the vampires are the hunky love interests, I think it's True Blood where they can specifically, like, have eternal erections because they can control the, their blood. This that makes sense because the um, original explanation for like why we get erections and like how we lost control of our, of, of our central nervous system was it was one of God's little jokes after we fell. Like that was one of the things we lost in the fall. So women who blush, it betrays their inner, you know, whatever horniness, but also their right. depravity. And then the male erection is like, ha ha, um, like God's showing you that you can't control your, yeah, your depravity. So I guess if vampires are like depraved, sinful, satanic beasts, they get that back i don't know yeah interesting um although i think it, like the idea is that being fed on by a vampire and interview the vampire is orgasmic okay well there's also that explanation <laughs> there's a lot of stuff about vampire erections yeah there shouldn't be though. we don't have time to do a part four what is it fellow <laughs> logocentric <laughs> <laughs> like a centric, yeah. I just feel like you'd end up bumping into things all day long. <laughs> Wouldn't it hurt? <laughs> like... It's generally like within four to eight inches of your body. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Even less, because it's on a bit of an angle. I don't have one, so I wouldn't know. Um, are you a vampire? Maybe. <laughs> Maybe. The other interesting thing about Queen Yarbo St. Germain is uh, that is one of these uh, subversions of the traditional vampire tropes that I want to talk more about in the next part. 
is that he has specially constructed hollow shoes that he fills with his native soil so he can just walk anywhere. That's cool. Yeah, I thought that was a cool one. Yeah. And that's just like in one sentence, she just puts that in there and that's like, is Vampire can walk around, don't worry about it. <laughs> but what if? He just put it in, it sucks. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> but uh, Yabo claims her, her big contribution was that she wanted to extrapolate the vampire's long lifespan to imply a more cultivated life of scholarship. Um, and education and things rather than just going around conquering things. Um, which, we again, we don't really get that in Interview with the Vampire because they're too busy being sad. But where we do get it, do you want to have a guess? Uh, no. It's Varney. The answer is oh, Varney. Oh, Varney, Varney. The answer is always Varney. Okay. Yeah, right. This, again, this is something Varney did. So sort of the three big things that these books do, Varney does. I, I don't know. We could have saved a lot of time if everyone just read Varney. Mm. I don't know. Or well, Varney was better and good. <laughs> Well, it was very popular at the time. Okay. It's just that that form of serialized storytelling like fell out of favor. Mm. So it's like pretty unwieldy to a post-novel audience. All right. We're coming. This is the Byron Redux. I'm excited for this one. Mm. I now want to talk to you about the 1982 novel Fever Dream by Game of Thrones author George R.R. R. Martin. This is, I think, his second or third book. So to quickly explain the plot, this is about a, a Mississippi... Uh, no, not Mississippi, New Orleans. New Orleans or Mississippi, one of those. A, a riverboat captain um, who is employed by a vampire who is a like competing with another vampire, and there's vampire wars going on, and they're trying to develop a vampire serum. Um, it's pretty good. You can skip like the first ten chapters, but then it gets real interesting. <laughs> But there is a lot of Byron references in here and that they specifically read Byron and Shelley's poetry. <laughs> so I, I've just taken out all the, the, the Byron relevant sections here and I just wanted to run them by you. Yes, yeah, so earlier when their they're vampire bloodmaster Joshua York is introducing himself to his steamboat captain Abner Marsh, he asks if he knows a Byron, to which Marsh replies, Gib, wasn't he? But quite a one for the ladies. <laughs> so, and men! <laughs> But I think that was a pretty good, uh, you know, summation of Byron. Yeah. And, and the Byronic hero, even. Okay. Well, yeah, I also found that interesting because Marsh is disfigured. Mm. He's introduced as being the ugliest man on the river, a massive man with a red face and a full black beard that he wore to cover up a flat pushed in the nose and a face full of warts. Um, so, again, this idea of the gothic villain being disfigured and things. Byron was... I don't want to say disfigured because he's like a real He had person, a club foot. He had a club foot, Well, he was yeah. a gimp, wasn't he? And quite a <laughs> one for the ladies. Hi, <laughs> <laughs> Bay. Um, see, I think George R. R. Martin's doing something here with the the appearance and, and the gothic mm. tradition. Later examining a picture of Byron in one of his collections, Marsh remarks that he looked pretty enough, dark and sensual like a creole. It was easy to see where the women went from, so even if he was supposed to be a gimp, supposed to be he was a gimp <laughs> <laughs> and marsh reflects that beauty was never something he had experienced from within with his bulk his warts Aww. his flat squashed nose he had never had to worry over much about women either Aww. so he's relating to byron here maybe yeah. that's a lost part of the byronic hero is the gimpishness york who's here again is a immortal vampire also reveals that he had the good fortune to meet byron once saying that their steamboat the eponymous fever dream reminded him of byron's poem she walks in beauty and the characters and crew regularly discuss byron and shelley's poetry uh reading the destruction of shannon cherub and darkness among other poems and um the fever dream is renamed the ozymandias after shelley's poem by the evil vampire bloodmaster damon julian and marsh attempts to track him down by reading every goddamn poem byron and shelley ever wrote to the point that he had the damn poems memorized and even went on to other poets 
So this is sort of a artistic or poetic inversion of Van Helsing's scientific folklore approach to hunting vampires. This is now, rather than reading folklore to track vampires, George R. R. Martin is saying here, no, you have to read poetry. You have to read Byron and Shelley's poetry to understand vampires, which I thought was pretty cool. Hmm. It is cool. It's interesting also in terms of Byronic hero stuff, right? Because we were talking about how with how vampires became the Dracula thing. They just keep redoing the Dracula things until they start experimenting. And then the creature, we know that even if you haven't seen Frankenstein, there's this cultural understanding and it's often wrong of what that is. And I think there's something similar going on with the Byronic hero here because although he talks about the other poems and I'd say the most um, obscure one is the destruction of Sennacherib, all the other stuff is like the surface what everyone knows about Byron and all of the complex stuff of what a Byronic hero is is taken away. So what I'm saying here is we're back to my old like... <laughs> issue the thing i will go to the grave about of like byronic heroes not being created by byron they're created about byron ideas about mm. byron's heroes after the fact and i think george martin is taking part of that and it's fun and like but it, it's nothing more than oh gimp wasn't he and it's like oh byron was a complex figure obviously um but they just like reduce him down to that the same way they have done with his heroes does that make sense it does but i, I think you, you're underselling george r. r martin who is i think so too <laughs> he's not only just saying oh yeah byron's a gimp he's specifically pointing that out like within a vampire tradition that has glamorized byron as this sexy ladies man and going well he was but not for the reasons we've portrayed him as and yeah i think that's that's running along yeah parallel i guess mm. like yeah i think the tour at work here i think it's just interesting that what he's telling us about byron is like the ob- like the obvious stuff and then he adds in that he has a he had warts potentially and he's <laughs> identifying with him which yeah uh, uh, yeah um so yes this this is another one along with the the vampire stat list out that i would recommend uh you alice uh read when you have a chance but also, this is one I would recommend to other people as well. It's quite good. It does, you can literally skip like the first 10 or 12 chapters because the story just does not kick in until then. And then, like, I think it's chapter 13 is a full on breakdown of like, okay, here's what's going on. <laughs> he lays out the whole like vampire story there. But yeah, um, we're, we're now up to the 80s. And we're not going to go much further because I don't think Pratchett goes much further than the 1960s and the and 70s with the Hammer Horror films. Another vampire trope, though, that we do get directly engaged with in. Carpet German, though, is the trope of the badass priest um, with Marley Oates. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. That, of course, he's playing with a trope. That's what, uh, That character was bugging me. I'm like, what is this? This is something. Well, it's what the uh, horrible website TV Tropes calls the badass preacher. It is a horrible website. Anyone here from Dark Hero, go elsewhere. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, please stop citing it in your um, <laughs> your uh, essays. Although I have I found myself citing it a few times in these transcripts. And, um, some That's of the, allowed. Some of the work I'm doing on uh, vampires at the moment because it's just where people have actually catalogued things. But, um, yes, uh, Marley Oates is described there as... Yes, an example of the badass preacher saying that early in Unseen Academicals, Mr. Nutt says he brought forgiveness. And late in Unseen Academicals, it's revealed that forgiveness, while he may have brought the concept as well, happens to be the name of his axe. And it is implied to be the same axe from Carpet Juggernaut, which was transformed from a simple ordinary axe into a weapon that could hurt vampires all because of his earnest faith. That's fucking So when you're asking where this comes from, I mean, um, the, the Hammer films... Uh, the Hammer films have the best man in housing, which is Peter Cushing, who's uh, probably most well-known today as Grand Moff Tarkin from Star Wars, um, who fires the Death Star and blows up Elrond. But um, yes, he was more famous before that for being Van Helsing and just witch hunters and just 
general badasses in in Hammer Vampire movies, including yeah, the Preacher, and I think it's Kiss of the Vampire. No, it's not. It's another one. He plays like a preacher in one of the other ones. Um, but I think where this concept really takes hold is through Stephen King's Salem's Lot from 1975, where you have uh, the character Father Callahan. Should I read this? One? Salem's Lot. No, I'm going to go out on a limb and say don't read Salem's Lot. Don't watch Salem's Lot, the movie. Salem's Lot is incredibly influential and incredibly well regarded and has not aged well at all. It's like a 700 page book where the first 350 pages, nothing happens. It has some cool scenes, one of which is Father Callahan's confrontation with the vampire. But I think I think that's where we get the the idea of the the badass priest. I, I do want to talk about Oats a bit more when we do do um, small gods and we can talk about omnism a bit more. Um, but yeah, some some other prominent examples is you have the the preachers from from Dust Till Dawn and Dan Simmons' Children of, of the Night, where the character in that is also has his leg amputated, so he was a gimp and one for the ladies because he goes around seducing people. Um, the the uh, book Vampires by uh, John Stakely. Good name for a vampire author. Uh, he made that. And up. then the Dresden Files, which are horrible. They are horrible. Thank you. Good God, they're horrible. Oh, I do. I told you. I bring in the the opening part of the the, the chapter that introduces the the female um, lead as an example of bad male gaze to our students. Oh yeah. God. But of course, this trope in the modern form evolves into the form of the vampire slayer, right? So obviously dates back to Van Helsing, who becomes this preacher in the Hammer films and so on. Um, but then you get things like Vampire Hunter D, Blade, Anita Blake, Alucard from um, Helsing and, and Castlevania. Uh, but also, and most influentially, Buffy, right? Buffy! You know more about Buffy than me. Do you want to say anything about Buffy? Not really. Alice is tired. I mean, there's really not a lot to say about Buffy. It's a, you know, teen drama sitcom with vampires and it's gothic and fun. Like, it's fun. Like, it's funny. Willow's great. You still have my book, my Andrew Miller book, where he talks about Buffy's connection to Paradise Lost through Frankenstein Blade. I forgot right? that's why you gave it to me and why I was meant to read it. That is why I gave it to God you. God damn it, I'll get to that. <laughs> okay. Um... There's a lot to say about Buffy in terms of vampire scholarship, but I will say that. Yeah, I figure everyone uh, talks about it because it's the easy one that everyone goes to, right? Well, it's very popular and it's very influential. And when it is influential is 1998 when Cover comes out. That's uh. when Buffy's um, hitting it. So I did want to point out that there, there's something going on in the 90s. Again, like we were saying, there's something going on in the 70s where vampires suddenly get sympathized. There is something going on in the 90s where vampire fiction explodes. Is it to do with the AIDS crisis then? Um, That is referenced in some of them, though not as prevalently as you would think. Mm, Okay. I think it might have more to do with the bicentennial, or no, the centennial of of Dracula Uh. in 1997. Um, There's something in the 90s where not, not only do you get an explosion of vampire fiction, but you get this wild experimentation. Um, that sort of starts in the mid-80s with um, films like uh, Fright Night and The Lost Boys. Have you seen The Lost Boys? You told me to watch it, I will. <laughs> Lost Boys is a movie that I can't say is a good movie, but it's a very important movie. I can say it's a good movie. It's a fun movie. There's a sexy sex man. It's great. Um, do you want to Google the, the, the poster of The Lost Boys for me quickly? Oh, yes. So if you... We got this first one with the, the red background yep. and the dude with the sunglasses. Okay. So, and that so is that's Byron Shelley and Mary Shelley. Right. <laughs> you're you're on to this. Um, it's not Byron Shelley and Mary Shelley because I think the guy you're picking out is Shelley in the middle there. That's Kiefer Sutherland, a young Kiefer Sutherland. Okay. okay Jack Bauer um, is more of a Byron figure. He's the bad guy and the, the cool Byron guy on the left is the good guy. But yes, no, this movie is 
most famous, apart from the sexy sax man, which you'll know it when you see it, is, um, yeah, for starring the young Peter Sutherland and the two Corys, uh, Corey Haim and Corey Feldman. This was their first collaboration that became a thing. But what everyone forgets is the actual main character and the hero of the movie is that Byron-looking guy on the left with the sunnies and the, the dark hair, uh, who is an actor named Jason Patrick. Do you want to know his other film credits? Go on. He played Lord Byron in the 1990 film adaptation of Brian Ellis' 1973 novel Frankenstein Unbound. That sounds terrible. Where the author insert protagonist travels back in time to burn Mary Shelley, and it's one of the absolute worst books I have ever read. <laughs> It sounds bad. Um, also, I feel like he got the Byron role just because of his cheekbones. Like, he's clearly a descendant of one of Byron's terrible family members. Good lord. <laughs> Did Byron have the cheekbones? Yeah, yeah, Byron had the cheekbones. Just look in a, in a painting of him. He's got the cheekbones. Okay. Yeah. Um, yes, there was also a sequel to Frankenstein Unbound released that same year called Dracula Unbound, what I have not read because it's hard to access. So that's all happening at the start of the 90s. Yeah, there's, there's the centenary, uh, 1997, which is marked by an officially authorized sequel, Dracula the Undead, uh, which, as we mentioned before, was the working title for Dracula. This is written um, as authorized by the Bram Stoker estate by an author named Frida Warrington, who I don't know if they've written anything else. This book is it's pretty good. Again, it's about going to um, a secret, the, the Scholomancy which is mentioned in Dracula. That's like the, the evil satanic wizard school. They go and find that and they release Satan and then Dracula has to fight Satan and maybe Dracula is Satan and Satan is a big fire dragon, lots of Satan. So recommend that one to you maybe. And of course, copy of Juggalum coming in at the end there. There's uh, Francis Ford Capella's horrible uh, film, Bram Stoker's Dracula which has the audacity to call itself Brand Service Dracula and then have a, uh, a, a sympathization of Dracula who's pining for his lost love and, and is, is just a Byronic um, dude. So not Bram Stoker's Dracula at all. Mm. And also has the audacity to cast Keanu Reeves as um, Jonathan Harker. <laughs> <laughs> the audacity! <coughs> um, it's, you hear his accent. I love him. There's only one accent worse than that in all of Vampire Film, and that is uh, Kate Beckinsale and Van Helsing. But yes, quite, I don't know if there's ever been a more miscast role than that one, but somehow people like that movie. Interviewed the Vampire, of course, gets filmed. And yes, lots of stuff going on that I will talk more about in the bonus episodes I'm going to do about the films and the books. Yes, also in 2012 and 2011, so a little bit after the fact, there was a an award, a Bram Stoker Award, by the Horror Writers Association for the Vampire Novel of the Century. Okay. The nominees were The Soft Whisper of the Dead from 1983, written by Charles L. Graham. One of the worst books I've ever read. No idea how that made the list, <laughs> so we can ignore that one. But the other nominees were Salem's Lot by Stephen King, which we mentioned. Um, I Am Legend. Anno Dracula from 1992, which is another one that comes through, which um, that's about a alternate history where Dracula succeeded in conquering London and then the aristocracy is populated by all the vampires from literary history. So I mean, that, that just sounds like it's true. Um, <laughs> they also they mainly just hang out and play cricket. Yeah, that sounds like Boris Johnson. <laughs> yeah, good point. <laughs> Boris Johnson, vampire confirmed. <laughs> um, so there's that one, Interview with a Vampire, and then Hotel Transylvania, the one with the uh, spermless uh, vampire by Chelsea Quinn-Yarbo. Well, that's what I was going to ask you. Do you want to take a step? I mean, I'm going to say Interview with a Vampire. I would have said that's the one. I think that's the one. Was actually it was Iron Legend, yeah. which I was quite surprised to see win. I would have thought they'd go with yeah, Interview or Salem's Lot, but they went with Iron Legend, which might be my favorite book of those. Mm. I'm not sure. Um, so that's what's going on in the '90s, and Pratchett comes along right at the tail end of that. Um, which I bring up to say that it's interesting that he's like the postmodernist 
satirist guy and he's playing with his vampire tradition but all this other stuff is going on around him with vampires and he's really sticking to the traditional idea of yeah the 60s stuff I mean he kind of gestures towards the seductive aspect of the um uh the Vlad guy who's trying to seduce Agnes but like none of the vampires are like tortured or Byronic or pieing they're all this old gothic villain Mm. Dracula um, Persistent. So yeah, I guess he's um, focusing more on the Dracula tradition than the vampire tradition. And therefore he's focusing on the Byronic tradition rather than the vampire tradition. Yeah, interesting. Well, I would say the other way, he's focusing on the Gothic tradition rather than the Byronic tradition. Okay, all right, you lost me, but yeah. <laughs> yes, and just, just to wrap up quickly, the other thing that happens in the 90s is the beginning of the next phase of the vampire archetype, which is the beloved vampire. <laughs> so we have the monstrous vampire, the sympathetic vampire. There's now what, what we're calling the beloved vampire, which is your Twilight. Yeah. Right? Twilight's the big one that really comes out in 2005. And I think, yeah, after Into the Vampire and Dracula is like the big one. That's the paradigm shifting book for incomprehensible reasons. That's the one that stuck. But this tradition actually starts in, um, or is commonly attributed to L.J. Smith's first Vampire Diaries novel, The Awakening, from 1991. So Pratchett's coming along and doing this right as we're getting the shift in the tradition. Um, and if he's not engaging with the sympathetic Byronic vampire trope, well, it's already, that trope's almost already over. Hmm. And we're shifting into this new thing, which everything's being dominated by now. But yes, more about that in the next episode, maybe. Um, because something that comes along with that is what in Twilight is called vegetarian vampires who are definitively not vegetarian because their whole thing is they drink animal blood rather than human blood but that is a one of the tropes that separates or some people would argue separates a beloved vampire from a sympathetic vampire right Louis in uh, Interview with the Vampire tries to not drink human blood until the stat just goes dude give it up you're meant to drink blood you're a vampire stop being such a pussy essentially but then you get to the Collins who they're all about nature and, and it's like a sustainability near Karnas argument that I have a lot of problems with and I will maybe invite Sophie on and to talk about that because she wrote a thesis about it. But this is part of the modern vampire tradition that Pratchett's engaging with because we get the slight reference to Aunt Camilla who only drank animal's blood right at the end of Carpa Jugulum. Um, but then Pratchett goes on to develop this in especially The Truth and um, I think it's The Fifth Elephant and Thud where we get the introduction of the Vampire Temperance League and the Black Riveters who vampires are able to integrate into modern anthropomorphic society by um, taking a vow of non-human blood drinking so this is an aspect that Pratchett engages with rather in depth that I'm very interested in and I'm writing about Alice that was very good I'm excited I was excited to hear the, the culmination of like five or six months worth of work from Josh so uh, I think I started in August I have well I have promised that we were going to do a third we part will. we go through do, do we want to do we have that in us I have it in me all right and then we'll do more <laughs> We'll do that. Then we'll do um, then we'll do the Witches series wrap up, which I did put out a little thing um, on the feed saying, "Hey, if you got any questions about the Witches books, Witches series, send them in." I'm sad this is the last one, but also I'm excited for Mort, which is the one I think I remember the most about from being a teenager. Yeah, well, when we get to Mort, which will probably be in a month or two, um, by the time we record and. Uh, uh, edit it because I've started a new job. I'm moving house. Alice has COVID. Our life's a disaster. Um, <laughs> I have to write an article in this month. I've got to read all my year 12 texts, but they've changed. They've changed the logic. <laughs> um, oh yeah, Mort, which is one I, I'm looking to you to have a lot to say about because this is going to be about the the Bill Dungsman, but also the hero's journey. Yeah, is, baby. Uh, that's what I, if I wrote my honest thesis on um, 
I imagine you wrote yours on, on the hero's journey, so I we mean, should be well equipped to tackle that. Yeah, well, yeah. No, I did. You're right. I was going to say I didn't, but I did. <laughs> I wrote, I was like, the anti-hero's journey. I'm like, what's the bad guys doing? But yeah, you're right. I well, just, I mean, he's Death's Apprentice. Yeah. That's pretty anti-heroic. Yeah, you're right. No, you know my thesis better than me. <laughs> well, folks. <laughs> That's not true. All right, we'll see you for that when we get around to it. Good. Bye. Bye. And we're clear. That's all for this episode of Unseen Academicals. There'll be another one along in a month, but if you can't wait until then, you can sign up to our Patreon page and get all the episodes a full month in advance, along with any bonus episodes or specials that we end up doing. If you're after more of us, Alice hosts her own podcast of The Devil's Party, which traces the development of the satanic hero throughout romantic and gothic literature. Links to a bibliography for today's show, along with a fully referenced and footnoted transcript, should be available in the episode description. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned for some amusing outtakes. Destroyer Thalabuckle Ridge is Chris Bell. Lord Byron the Giel, Augustus Stavo Polidori, it was Rhyme of Was Impressed, Barney the Vampire. Strange and mysterious, Tom Miller and Claremont, Abraham writes Dracula and Marriott writes Blood. Shambhalow and Lovecraft, Dexter Ward and Kerwin, Nosferatu close the blood. Bella doesn't drink wine, we didn't have vampires. They were always turning people into vampires. We didn't start vampires. No, we couldn't fight them, but we tried to write them. Kansas Mara Alicard, Bella's back is Armon, Dragon Talbot wanna cue our house of Frankenstein. Black Sunday Blood and Roses Trilogy Can't start Horror Comics Marvel's Tomb Blood Spatted Bright Vampirella's Hot Bud Sturgeon wants some of your blood Tarkin the Saruman I am Legend Matheson Queen of Blood Stephen King Salem's Lots and Next Big Thing Guns, Pets and Gunja And the Fearless Vampire Killers We didn't start vampires They were always turning people into vampires We didn't start vampires no, we couldn't fight them, but we tried to write them. Vampire Adam, Stanley, Lily, Monster, isn't scary. Raining Dolls, Sir, good for Barnabas and Collinwood. Sabahag and Teldrak, Science, solving parts at Sherlock's side. Not a monster, he's a sire. Interview with the vampire. <laughs> oh, Magnus and Lestata, bro. Space Vamps, Quinya, bro. Susie Murky's Tapestry. Stryber's Baylock is hungry. Cameron Thirst, the damn queen. Aramon's Fever Dream. Gendron's Colton family, Tifa and the Corys We didn't start vampires They were always turning people into vampires We didn't start vampires No, we couldn't fight them, but we tried to write them Stay clean, human, Catherine Meyer, Griffith, Warrington, Helsing, LJ Smith's Awakening, Jimin's Children of the Night, Poppy, Zebra, Kitty Twister, 
Red Rider Tom, Yanni's accent is all wrong. Fluderman, Masquerade, Bucky and Angel can't get late. Hunter T, Blake and Blake, who else do we have that slays? We didn't start vampires. They were always turning people into vampires. We didn't start vampires. No, we couldn't fight them, but we tried to write them. Terry's ribbon switch, Ling Ling quest left the right one in sunshine. Darren Chan, Underworld, News Head. Kronos played two, and this time, Terra on the airline. Edward Cullen, he's our man. Jacob doesn't stand a chance. Eric, Bill, and Sam all drive. Taking Suki for a ride. Lissa's spirit, Rose's chest. Jordan and John, Sting of Death. Tom and Tilda's life's so bored. Swans are fighting vampire wars. Nigel, Leslo, and Nandor. Can't take Colin anymore. We didn't start vampires. They were always turning people into vampires We didn't start vampires But when we're gone They'll live on and 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 on Two, three, four, five, six, six countings. Ah, 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 ah. <laughs> you set me up. I was like, six, wait, what are we doing? Six numbers? <laughs> yeah. Are you, you good? You feeling all right? Yeah. I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll have to poop before Stephanie's lesbians. <laughs> You're, uh, sorry, I heard I'll have to poop before um, 70s lesbians. That's that's what I said. Well, I guess we are going to talk about 70s lesbians. Okay. Where are the lesbians? Uh, they're on the next page. Okay. <laughs> Where are they? I don't know, Josh. Um, but in the same interview, Rice, who, of course, died pretty recently. I just want to acknowledge that. Um Nothing really to say about it, but she died in the middle of while I was putting all this together and reading these books. Like, hey, these vampire books are pretty good. And then uh, yes. she's dead. Um, oh, is but, she? Um, <laughs> Sorry. Let me try to telephone. Let's plow on with our eternal erections. Hey, yo, I'm eating Fun Dip right now. Not giving a fuck. You know.